listening to the bomb hole. It's going to be very hot. It's going to be very uncomfortable for everybody. The bomb hole. Gonna slide down them big hills. You know what I mean? On the big, nice burgundy snowboard. Okay, another beautiful day here in the booth at the bomb hole, which is presented by Pub Beer. Now, first things first, always got to ask, Stony Buds, how are we doing? So good, my dog. Love hearing that. Now, to my left, we have Blue Montgomery in the booth today. Blue, how are we doing? Real, real good. <laughs> happy to be here. Well, we are happy you're here as well. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Blue, uh, he was an ex-professional snowboarder. He's a founder of Capita Snowboards. He is one of the founding partners of Union Binding Co. He's a family man. And uh, it's hard to put into words the incredible effect that Blue has had on the snowboarding industry as a whole. We're going to do our best to do that today. Um, but first things first, I think we start with the Patreon. Let's do it. And uh, first, thank you to all the Patreon members. We could not do this without you. This first one's from good friend and Patreon member Benny Pellegrino. Tell me your favorite story about living with E-Stone. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get going. First of all, thank you for the very kind introduction. I really appreciate it. And I'm honored to be here. I'm a big fan of the bomb hole. Uh, secondly, Benny Pellegrino. What a gem of a human that dude is. Benny, love you. Thank you for writing in. So, E-Stone, Stony Buds. Um, yeah, man, we go way back. We've had some life adventures, and we used to be roommates, and... You know, you and I, we lived in one of the great party houses in Salt Lake snowboard history. We definitely did. <laughs> Remember Bubba's Bar? Oh, man. It was uh, quite the establishment. I'd say some of the best parties that went down at the time were at Bubba's Bar. So it was Bubba's Bar, Club Bubba. Bubba Club depends on what kind of party we were having, you know. But um, it was named after uh, I had a 70-pound English bulldog who was so sweet. Such a nice dog. And uh, Bubba went everywhere with me. And... Um, you know, they say smart dogs, you know, between like three to five words, but, you know, Bubba knew at least 30. You know, I was doing most of the talking, but you could have full conversations with the kid, you know? He'd be, he'd be at the bar chilling, you know, taking people's IDs. But here's how the whole Bubba's bar thing went down. So Ethan and Bobby Meeks and I decided to live together one winter. So I was tasked uh, to find us a rental. So I met this uh, wonderful woman who had a rental, and she showed me her house, and I walked in, and, um, you know, there's pink carpet and pink paint and pink sinks. So I was like, wow, there's some fucking 70s Palm Spring vibes up here in, in Salt Lake City, you know? And uh, I went down the stairs, and there it was, the bar. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking the mini bar in your buddy's dad's basement. And that is not what I'm talking about. I mean, this thing was glorious. I mean, it's the type of place you get a liquor license and start taking people's money tomorrow. Yeah, it's better than some of the bars in, the, in town, for sure. And I remember standing there in the moment, looking at this bar. It's like, it's like the clouds parted. A rainbow punched me in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and I told this woman, I said, ma'am, we'll take it. And then we ended up having the biggest parties in Salt Lake City for the next two years. Man. But, that house was sweet, too. I remember coming in one day, walking in the door, because there's, like, a lot of people in and out, you know? And there's, like, a duvet over the kitchen table, like a fort, like a little kid would make. And I go in there, like, lift up the du duvet, and fucking J2's in there with a flashlight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, Twos, what are you doing? He's like, oh, 
I live here now. It's my roommate. It's, it's my this is my bedroom. Ethan said it's cool. <laughs> so, so I never followed up on that. But did you say it's cool that today too could live under our kitchen table? I think he just kind of assumed he could live wherever I lived. Type type of program. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think I actually gave him permission. Oh man, one memory I have from that house. So back in these days, I mean, Bobby Meeks and I, we were big time pro snowboarders, big time. And, uh, you know, you do what any young, irresponsible kid does that's never had money in their entire life that all of a sudden has a little bit of money. And um, we went straight to the dealership and bought brand new cars. <laughs> you know, Bobby and I bought the same car in the same month. And uh, I remember Travis Wood sitting us down. And by the way, shout out to T. Wood. Um, you got to get him on the on the show. Yeah, so we're working on it. T. Wood. I mean, long before the snowboarding industry had Travis Rice, we had Travis Wood, and that dude has some stories <laughs> about snowboard history that blow your blow your hair back. Okay, so Travis Wood is like the friend that um, you know he he he's like the friend that shoots you straight, you know, and and oftentimes kind of harsh about it, but more often than not, you know, he's it's it's true. And I remember he he sits Bobby and I down, and he's like. He's like, you guys just both bought brand new cars? And we're like, yeah. And this is a direct quote. Okay, this is a direct quote. He looks at us. He says, you dumb motherfuckers think your snowboard career is going to last forever? And I was like, oh, oh Travis, I never really, never really thought about that, <laughs> you know? But if you listen to this podcast and you happen to be a professional snowboarder, let me save you the suspense. Your career will not last forever. Um, so make smart decisions. Facts. So, um, so I, we were dying to have these cars and they're only one in stock. So I go up there, you know, at nighttime, the dealership like stays open for me. You know, Cody Dresser's like, he's like, don't go up there. You know, going to the car dealerships, like looking for a puppy, you know, like you come back with one. And I was like, dude, you think I'm going all the way up there to not come back with one? You know? So I come back <laughs> and the next morning I wake up, Bobby, wake up, Ethan, you know, I'm so excited to show you guys. And, uh, Ethan comes out to the driveway. It's like beautiful, sunny Salt Lake day. And uh, Ethan's in his boxer shorts. Classic. Rubbing his eyes, you know, looking at the car, rubs his eyes, looking at the car. Ethan's just like, he's like, dude, you bought a purple car? I went up there at night. I bought him at night. I thought it was blue. I didn't ask what color it was. <laughs> you know? So so Bobby has this like, you know, cool black one, of course, whatever. First, I get, you know, I got to take a step back, talk about Bobby and I, we go way back. So Bobby and I go back like, you know, before the low cash days, Bobby and I go back to the no cash days. So Bobby and I, we used to share a bedroom with no furniture. I'd sleep on the floor on one side of the room. Him and his stinky ass ferrets would sleep on the other side of the room. By the grace of God, we both had smoking hot super curl girlfriends until they dumped us. We snowboarded all day, every day, partied our faces off every night, and we were just living the dream, you know? And with the benefit of a little bit of hindsight, it's interesting how some of those moments in life where, you know, you have the least is when you're having the most fun. And we were crushing, crushing those days, you know? Um, but Bobby and I, we're, you know, we're brothers. And um, he is the much more charismatic, funny, fun one. You know, everybody wants to hang out with Bobby. And, you know, that's cool. Whatever. I can I can I can accept that. Because I'm the much more mature and responsible one. And I'm capable to understand my mistakes and own own my stuff, you know? And uh yeah, I bought a purple car, so what? 
I drove that. I pushed that purple cush for 12 years. I ran 150,000 miles on those tires. <laughs> and, yeah, Bobby had a cool black one, but guess what? Oh, Bobby slipped on a banana peel, and the repo man spooked his shit up in the middle of the night. <laughs> right, right from our crib. <laughs> <laughs> Missed some payments, dude. Huh? We yeah. all came hey. out one morning. The car was gone. You got, you got to pay those bills, young Bobo. <laughs> I haven't lived a perfect life, but you're never gonna see an episode of Dog's Bounty Hunter about me. <laughs> wow, roaster's choice <laughs> right roaster's there. Roaster's choice, unreal. Well, uh, incredible, <laughs> incredible story right out of the gate. Hit the ground running. I think uh, maybe at this point. You're you're from uh, Iowa originally, correct? Not too many snowboarders from that area. You want to talk about your upbringing and what that was like? Yeah, growing up, I grew up in Marshalltown, Iowa. It's a small town, yeah. center of the state, and you know, I understand from an outsider's perspective, Iowa probably doesn't seem like the coolest place in the world. But I can tell you, I had an incredible, incredible childhood, and um, we didn't have a lot of things, you know, and it wasn't a fancy place, but. You know, it was safe, and we grew up with uh, total freedom and 100% autonomy, and it was that era where you weren't allowed to come home till dark and just grew up outside. And, you know, I was raised by wonderful parents and also friends' parents and the village and, to some degree, you know, the kids. I mean, we kind of raised ourselves as like some Lord of the Flies type shit, and I just really appreciate um being able to grow up in that, in that time, in that place. So at what point, I'm just curious, like how does, how does somebody from Iowa find snowboarding? Cause that is not known for that activity. Um, well, we are diehard skateboarders as kids and, um, you know, people, I mean, we don't have any mountains in Iowa, but it gets cold and snows in the winter and there are a handful of ski resorts in the state. And so, you know, in those early days in the eighties, you know, 90s people were talking about like surfing on snow, you know, but we weren't surfers. We were hardcore skateboarders. And back then there was no skate park. There certainly wasn't an indoor skate park. And so snowboarding was our, you know, it was all about being able to skateboard through the winter. Okay. And I also heard that you spent a bunch of time in Michigan as a kid in the summers, correct? That's true. I spent a ton of time up there. So, um, you know, I was a cradle Episcopalian. My parents were believers. I had to go to church and Sunday school every single Sunday from birth to 18. And one Sunday after church, my dad was at coffee and donut hour and he buys a plot of land in Northern Michigan sight unseen from the preacher off of one 35 millimeter photograph. And he got, came home and he's getting roasted by the neighbors and his friends. Like, you know, what are you doing? You know? And so he puts the whole family in the car, drives us all the way to the upper peninsula of Michigan. And guess what? It's real, exists. It's not a scam. That's great. But it's on an island with no bridges or roads. He didn't know that. So he had to buy a boat, throw the whole family on the boat to get to this island. Island's five miles long, two miles wide, and it's just dense, uncut forest. And so that first summer, you know, my dad, he comes from another era, you know, it's an era of, of doers. So he gets, puts the family off, ripping chainsaws, getting the tents out. And that first summer, I spent 45 days in the woods with no running water, no electricity, no nothing, like full bushcraft and um, running wild. You know, did it again at six, did it again at seven, did it again every summer. And from a very early age, learning how to run a compass and learning Hansel and Gettle games and where are you at in the forest and how you, how do you get back. And, um, you know, just that being up there and running free is where I really 
fell in love with nature and, um, you know, kind of found my church, so to speak. You know, my parents may feel connected in a physical church and great for them. I'm happy for them that they have that love in their life. But for me, I've always felt that connectivity with a higher spirit, a higher power in nature. And I found it really young up there. You know, there's there's snakes up there, but no poisonous ones. And there's a ton of wildlife, but there's no cougars. There's no grizzly bears. You know, the only thing that's going to kill you is the water. And I grew up with a very healthy respect for the water and Mother Nature and spent a lot of time boating, fishing, sailing. And that's a passion of mine that's continued throughout my life. Yeah, I've heard that you're really into sailing um, from some of my friends at Ride for Capita and whatnot. And I got to ask, the only other person I know it's sales is Travis Rice. You and T. Ricky ever been out on the open water? We have actually. Yeah, I do. I mean, I love sailing. It's crazy. I kind of feel about sailing now. I feel about skateboarding when I was 14, which sounds wild, but it's like I dream about it. You know, I think about it. It's just, uh, it's something that's really dear to my heart. And um, yeah, T. Ricky, you know, hit me up one time, which is, which is kind of funny, man. Like I have this theory about celebrities, about how they, they just come in and out of your life, you know? And in snowboarding, we have a lot of famous snowboarders and a lot of famous snowboarders. I think in terms of like friendship, they function like normal people, despite the fact that they're famous, but being a celebrity is something else, you know, and we have few real celebrities in snowboarding and I, and, um, you know, I've know some other people in other sports and other, you know, the arts that, that are at that level. And I've just, it's just an observation that they don't function like normal friends. They come in and out of your life on their terms. And you take Danny Cass, for example. So Danny, known him for a long time, but he is actually friends with my wife, better friends with my wife. They're buddies before me and my wife met. And so, you know, I don't talk to Danny Cass for years. And then one day I'll drive down the cul-de-sac and there's a big ass RV in the cul-de-sac. I'm like, what the fuck is that thing? Look in there, Danny Cass sitting in there in the cul-de-sac. No, no notice, no heads up. No, I'm not. He just comes into your life. (laughs) And of course, everybody in the cul-de-sac already knows him. And my neighbor that I thought was super conservative is in there smoking weed with Danny Cass, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, it's just kind of funny, like, you know, one older neighbor is like, oh, that Danny, he's such a sweet boy. And the other neighbor is like, who's that guy? I'm like, dude, you have no idea. That guy won the U.S. Open five times, has two Olympic medals as his own TV show. He's a goddamn legend. You know, but Danny comes in the house. Of course, Jackie is just so excited to see him. And he's so great with the girls and they love him. And, you know, someone like that comes into your home and it's just like the sun's shining and everybody's happy, you know, and it's so great. And we love Danny. And then the next morning when that RV goes up the driveway, poof, he's out of your life. I haven't seen Danny since. <laughs> heard from him. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, but who knows? That's just how he rolls. You know, that's his style. And maybe I'll fly home from this and I'll get out, see <laughs> Tech Airport, go home. There'll be some big-ass RV in my cul-de-sac. Danny Castle will be sitting there. Who knows? But, you know, Travis is kind of the same way where, you know, it's like I don't consider Travis, like, you know, and I particularly close. But then one day I go to work randomly and Travis will come in and sit on the couch and we'll have this incredible conversation about life and about love and about snowboarding and about deep stuff. And when he leaves, I'm like, wow, you know, hey, we're better friends than I thought, <laughs> you know? And it's just, uh, so they kind of come in and out and that's what happened with the sailing trip. It's like one day my phone rings, I look down, it says T. Bryce on my phone. I know that dude ain't calling me just to shoot the shit. 
you know, so you pick up the phone and he's like, he's like, Hey, you know, I know that you, you're, you sail and, um, Falcor, his boat is, you know, it's in the Bahamas, you know, so moved to North Carolina. He's like, would you mind sailing, help me sail? I'm putting together a small crew to sail. I was like, you know, I'm a busy dude, but there's some people in your life when they call, you answer. And there's some people in your life when they ask you to do something, you just say yes. And I tell you, Travis Rice, one of those people. When Travis Rice calls my phone, I don't even say hello. I just say yes. I say Travis Rice, yes. <laughs> you know? Whatever Travis Rice is calling you for, the answer is yes. Okay? And so, yeah, I fly to the Bahamas on a whim, four-person crew, and this is on a boat like that on an ocean pass. As we cut across a chunk of the North Atlantic, you know, and you basically have teams. And so uh, – Travis and this other guy and Joe, they had a team where they would navigate and sail the, the vessel. And, and then Brian, this other guy and myself would essentially cook and clean and, you know, relax. And then with the next shifts, then we would sail and navigate. And then those two would, would relax, you know? And so we leave the Bahamas and weather's great and sailing's great. And then we go through a little point where there's some doldrums and, and it's kind of surreal being that far off shore and there's like no wind and no waves and it's just glassy and just, it's just a pretty incredible experience, you know? Um, but anyway, we get to a point and we're like 350 nautical miles off the shore of South Carolina. So we're deep out there and a squall hits, a storm comes in and Brian is sailing and his shift's almost done. It's almost my shift. And I can feel I'm in my bunk sleeping, waiting for my shift. And I'm wait, I can feel the sea state pick up and the waves pick up to the point where I'm like air timing in my bunk my full body's like off the bunk and landing on the bunk, you know? And so I'm just like, oh shit, you know, it's like, okay, let's do this. So I get up there and when it was my turn to take the helm, the storm accelerated and it was unlike anything I had ever witnessed in my life. Um, and I think if you tie it into snowboarding, oftentimes with snowboarding, there's a false sense of security. You know, imagine, like the day after, you know, the bluebird day after a storm dumps a bunch, run a mountain peak, you're with your best friends, sunshine and no wind, super beautiful, full of gratitude and love. But that snowpack could settle and something could break off and you guys could all be dead like that. And so there's some, kind of a false sense of security, even if you do your due diligence and do all your proper protocols. And the thing with sailing you know, it's been romanticized for thousands of years. And, and one of the reasons why is there's a potential range of experience. And on one end, it's super mellow, super chill and relaxing. And on the other end is terrifying and potentially death. And the only difference between chill and terrifying is the wind and the waves and your ability to deal with it. That's it. And so we're in this situation. I'm at the helm and shit is hitting the fan. I mean, I'm looking up at waves off the stern. It's picking the boat up. I have a 48-foot catamaran surfing down waves, going 24 and a half knots of boat speed, which on a sailboat is hauling ass. And, you know, the wind and the waves are pushing you this way, but North Carolina's pushing you or that way. So you're, like, going up the waves, and you're cranking on the helm. And the boat's just, like, like super fast. And uh, you're white-knuckled and gripped because – you know, in that moment, um, you know, like in a monohold sailboat, like in a normal sailboat, in theory, you know, that the masthead could hit the water, it could right itself. But on a multi-hull, if that thing tips over, you're all going to die. And um, in, in that moment, there's no opportunity to like press pause. You can't, you can't like, oh, let's 
press pause and regroup and think about this. And like, it's like every single moment you have to be on it. And that moment lasts for hours and hours, depending on the storm. Um, but there is one definitive moment where Travis wakes up and he goes up to the helm and he's hanging on, you know, with one hand and he looks out of the sea state, just pitch black and spray everywhere and looks up at the masthead and he looks at the instruments and I'm fucking running the helm like this and shit's hitting the fan going crazy. And he looks at me, pats him on the shoulder and he says, you got this. And he goes back to bed. You know? <laughs> so one, so first of all, I'm, I'm pretty sure Travis Ray sold that boat to John John Florence for 1.6 million on a homie deal. So it's like a $2 million carbon fiber, 48 foot catamaran and all four of our lives on the line. And he's like, you got this. And goes back to bed. It's totally chill. Now, now <laughs> I did have this, of course, and we made it safely because you got to do what you got to do in the moment, you know? But, you know, I had some some takeaways, you know, from that trip when I on the way home. You know, I had a kind of a moment of reflection. And I've come to the com- conclusion that Travis Rice is an adventurer in his soul, unlike anything that I've ever seen before. I think that he is a famous professional snowboarder by circumstance because of the time and the era in which he was born. And I'm pretty convinced that if he was born in another era or in another place, he would be a famous, you know, I don't know, uh, explorer, expeditionist, pioneer, war hero, who knows, you know? But on the way home, it's clear he's a gnarly motherfucker. (laughs) One sidebar I got to add to that. I really like what you said about snowboarding having this false sense of security versus sailing where you just know you're in the shit. You know, like there's no, like you're just like, this is fucking sketchy. But, uh, Yeah, so so how was how did that experience rate as far as all of your life experiences so far? Oh man, well that, I mean that's one of the things about it. You think of all the stuff Travis has done and that that trip was probably just a drop in the bucket for him. And I'm telling you it was it was one of my peak life experiences. And, and I'm a guy that's like pretty lucky. I've done a lot of cool stuff. I've traveled around the world and done a lot of fun things. Um, <laughs> you know, but for me that was just that's that's in my memory banks for sure and you know, Travis, if you're listening, uh, thank you for, for taking me along. I, I really appreciate it. All right. I know you've lived a pretty incredible life, a lot of wildlife experiences. I know you have one particular story from Mexico that kind of ties in with that. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of a, it's a difficult story to tell and one that doesn't surface often in my life. You know, there's a lot of people close to me that don't even know the story, but, um, I think it's it's kind of a an interesting one to share because it plays into um, just kind of uh, you know the foundation for my life and what led into the snowboarding days. But um, you know, my dad was incredible man, and um, he just really believed in um, adventure as the cornerstone for you know um, the relationship between me and him and our family and. Um, there was a moment when I was 13, I think 12 or 13. And, um, my sister had come home from, she graduated high school. She came home the next day and told my parents that she joined the Marine Corps for six years. And so she left and my mom went back to school. So it was just my dad and I, and he comes home one day and he's like, he's like, you and me, we're going to have an adventure. Uh, he was an educator. So we had the whole summers off. That's why we could go to Michigan and do this stuff, you know? And, um, he's like, we're going to Mexico. And I was like, okay, all right, we're going to Mexico. So one day, um, we get a backpack. He has a backpack. I have a backpack. That's it. 
We get in the car, say goodbye to my mom. Uh, he drives us to the city limits of Marstown, Iowa. Stops the car, and, he, and he's like, he's like, get in the driver's seat. And at 13, um, he taught me how to drive a car, and I proceeded to drive that car all the way from Marstown, Iowa to Nogales, Arizona, to the Mexican border. Parked the car, took our backpacks, walked across the, the border, you know, got a, got a soda and found a, a bus that we could book to go to Mexico City. That's what we were trying to do. So my dad spoke Spanish, by the way. I didn't speak Spanish, but... So we get on this bus and um, everything's good until, you know, the second night. Um, it's the middle of the night and in the middle of the road, there's a, um, like a, like an armed roadblock, you know, like a roadblock. And there's a bunch of like armed gunmen, you know. And so they force the bus to go down this like access road. <clears throat> and at that point, that's when um, just... Uh, this experience happened that uh, that is just incomprehensible and kind of hard to put into words, but it got very, very bad very, very quickly. Um, shots were fired into the bus. Um, people were hurt. Um, people got off the bus. And um, it was very violent. And um, there was a moment where, um, you know, I don't know if they were like, you know, trying to, um, you know, make like an example out of somebody. And we happened to be the kind of ones that stood out being Caucasian Americans. Um, but there was a moment where every single person on the bus was laying face down in the sand and except for us two. And, um, one of the gunmen, um, pointed the gun, you know, on my dad in front of me. And then, um, after that happened, um, I don't know why, why they were trying to trigger him, but um, they, uh, like, held my dad down, and one of the guys um, um, basically, like, cocked the gun and pressed it to my forehead. And, sorry, I didn't think I'd be this emotional telling the story. I haven't told it in a long time, you know. But um, you kind of got to put this into perspective where, you know, at that point, I was a middle-class 13-year-old kid from Iowa. I hadn't really seen any adversity in my life yet. And... Here I was in the middle of the night, in the middle of the desert, having a very, very agitated human cock a loaded gun and press it to my forehead and scream at me in a language that I don't understand. Um, and um, it was heavy. So um, anyway, um, this story is kind of a saga, but um, we made it out of there alive, thank goodness. And... Um, Never made it to Mexico City, but we got off in Guadalajara, and um, they stole everything we had. We didn't. Have, we literally had nothing but what was what we were wearing. And um, my dad went to American Express office, but that's you know we had paper traveler's checks before the age of technology, and they wouldn't give us anything because we didn't have any receipts. And so my dad went to the United States Embassy. And the embassy wouldn't give us anything either, but they said that my mom could wire us money, but it had to go through Washington, D.C. first, and it would take three days to get there. And so this is 1986, and Guadalajara, Mexico, in terms of violent crime and poverty, is probably one of the worst cities, um, at least in North America. And um, one of the families that was on the bus said that if you have nowhere to go, come find us, we'll be at this hotel in between the train station and the bus station. And they talked to the manager and they let us stay there on credit. It was $4 a night 
minutes to stay there on credit. And um, so we, the, the rooms were horrible, as you can imagine. So we were in the streets. Um, and um, it's unbelievable in that environment, especially given how um, much of an outsiders that we were. We didn't, we clearly didn't belong there. Um, how much um, love and positivity that we saw from people that have nothing to give. You know, one lady gave us a loaf of bread, and my dad and I ate bread and water for three days downtown Guadalajara until this money came in. And, you know, that experience in my life, it just was a learning lesson about the duality of the human spirit, where just days before, I witnessed people willing and capable to hurt other humans to get ahead. And then two days after that, I see people with literally nothing to give, but they're so warm and so kind. And whether it was a loaf of bread or, you know, a laugh or a smile or a hug or whatever it may be, um, I, I saw that and I felt that. And, you know, that experience at 13 is just something that like, you just can't learn in school. You can't read it out of a textbook. You just got to live it, you know? Um, it was a wild time. Yeah, uh, yeah that's unbelievable. I, now I have a question, too, as far as just uh, fragility of life. I feel like in our society, too, death is not something that we just kind of don't think about. Uh, we just kind of pretend it doesn't exist. But did that give you a perspective on how fragile life was? Yeah, for sure, especially at that age, because I'd never really um, thought about it, um, at least in terms of my, myself, you know. But, you know, I think the how it affected my life more than anything, and, and I, look at it, it, I look back now at this being an ultimately a positive, is that when I went back to Iowa after that trip, my life was never the same. And you think of the teenage mindset, a lot of my friends were starting to rebel against their parents or act out or kind of figure out where they fit and how to get what they want. And um, I never, ever went through that because I had such love and appreciation or gratitude for my parents, especially my dad after that experience. And I would never, ever want to disappoint him or let him down. Um, and the hierarchy of like the parent uh, child relationship went out of the window. So when I went back to Iowa, I didn't have any rules. I literally had no rules. At 13, 14 years old, I could do what I want, say what I want, come and go as I please, no curfew, not like zero rules. And I know for some kids that that doesn't work because, you know, kids benefit from a certain amount of structure. Um, but after that experience with my dad, the level of respect was so intact that having no structure like that really fostered my confidence and my independence. Um, and that's something that I took into, you know, the snowboarding days as a, as a high school kid. You like prove to your dad, you can handle anything basically. Yeah. So he, in turn, you became a man that day, I guess. Yeah. I think that's fair to say. Um, and also, you know, the dynamic in Marshalltown changed too. My parents, I think had, um, had new, uh, outlooks on life and they really opened up our home after that. So I had two foster brothers and two foster sisters. Um, my parents shared a bedroom of our house with foreign community college students. And so there was always somebody in, you know, in the kitchen speaking a different language or cooking a new kind of food. And, um, so it was like, I kind of, my teenage years were very much like a revolving door, um, and that's kind of where I, I go back to the fact I really feel like I was raised by the community, you know? 
on a sidebar tangent here, I, I do find it really fascinating because I've gone down to Mexico before and you see these people that have no money and they their community is so tight and you go down to the square at night and everybody's down there. It's multi-generational homes. Everybody takes care of each other. And it's and then in, in the United States, you maybe go to upper, you know, upper class neighborhoods and everybody's in these huge houses and you see all these people that are have acquired all this massive wealth, but, and that's what we're aiming for in our society. But then I kind of had this weird epiphany that sometimes those people with the tighter communities, the, like you're describing the way your parents opened up your house, the people with the close family, they seem to be happier than the people that are in a big house where everybody's in separate rooms and there's no connectedness. I don't know if you have anything to add to that or. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think, you know, happiness has less to do with what you have and more about, you know, the outlook that you have on life and, and the love that you have in your heart. And I think being close to people is a, is a huge part of that. You know, helping people is, is a huge part of that. Um, it sometimes feels like it's, it's um, you know, we all just have so much going on in our lives. It's hard to keep our own shit together, more or less help somebody else. But when you do help somebody else, um, it really um, helps fill your heart with love. Okay, let's dive back into um, some snowboarding talk. First of all, I want to say thank you so much for telling that story. That was powerful and uh, really, really moving. And um, But let's go ahead and change gears and dive back into snowboarding. Um, I know that Mount Hood has played, if you look at people that have sat in that chair, Mount Hood has played a gigantic role in freaking almost everybody yeah, that sits almost in that chair. Almost every one of them. Now, and I know that it did in yours as well. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, Mount Hood played a huge role, but specifically summer camps. You know, I actually spent most of my time up in Whistler, you know, during the snowboard years. Um, And uh, so, yeah, you know, it's kind of funny how we got there, but the year after the Mexico deal, I think my dad was trying to uh, compensate and really wanted me to have a positive experience. And so, you know, he comes home one day and he's like, he pulls out a globe. And he's like, I want you to spin that globe and wherever your finger lands, that's where we're going. So I spun the globe and my finger just happened to land on this town called Tuktoyuktuk, which is on the Arctic coast in the Northwest Territories. It's now, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and uh, so that next summer, dude, he bought a 1987 Isuzu Trooper and we drove that fucker 9,000 miles all the way to the Arctic coast. Oh my God. (laughs) That's wild. Oh, he was, yeah, he was something else. And I love that, that, you know, cause he was all, he was a musician, you know, he played the bagpipes. That's actually how I got my name blue is, uh, my dad really celebrated our Scottish heritage and, uh, each family has the tartan or plaid that's on their kilts and ours, it's actually purple, but it's called the Montgomery blue. And so, um, I remember us being in Tuktoyuktuk, which is like, it's a whaling fishes village of, you know, first nations people, are, you know, it's not a ton up there. And, and again, we're kind of like the outsiders, people looking at us like, what are you doing here? You know, <laughs> and we didn't have any purpose to be there other than just the adventure, you know, but my dad would bust out the bagpipes and it's such a unique instrument and people, it just stopped people in the tracks. And then all of a sudden sparks conversation and people are inviting us over dinner and drinks. And it's just, I learned also from him, the connectivity and the magic of music that music can play in your life. Um, so anyway, on that trip, you know, we drove the trip and we went into British Columbia and just fell in love with like, you know, BC and how beautiful it is. 
And um, so the following summer, you know, because in the meantime there, we that's when we discovered snowboarding and my, my crew in Marshalltown. And I was, you know, learning about snowboard culture and getting, like, invested in the first movies and all the pros. And so I heard that Craig Kelly was having a snowboarding camp at Whistler. And this is the summer of 1989. And I fucking begged, begged my parents to take me there. And so, um, again, I kind of had the, the benefit of this Mexico thing in my back pocket, parents trying to compensate. So they get my best friend, Joe Stalzer, my grandma, mom and dad, and a little pop-up trailer. And they drove from Iowa all the way to Whistler. Dropped us off in the center by the keg restaurant in Whistler. And Ross Rebagliotti, you know, Ross, the first, you know, Olympic <laughs> snowboard medalist. He's oh, like, you guys here for the camp? And we're like, sure are. And he takes us to Craig's camp and man, that summer with something else as 15 year olds. You know, I saw just rank wit, young rank wit, talking shit to everybody, pushing everybody's buttons. I saw Mike Jacoby beat up Mike Rankwit in the parking lot. You know, I saw like the party savage side of snowboarders. And then I saw like, you know, Craig would in the morning, he would get up and he would stretch, you know, and he would take his craft seriously. And he just had this like vibe that he just seemed so connected, you know, and cool. And, and then we go to the half pipe and all the heroes are there. Roach was there and, um, you know, just so many people. And um, Damian Sanders, which was like, man, Damian at the time was the fucking coolest. He was like the biggest rock star. You gotta, I'm not trying to say like this whole it was better back then deal. I'm not doing that. But, you know, it's different because back then there were 20 pro snowboarders in the world and they were all rock stars or larger than life. And now there's like 400 dudes that can tell a girl in the bar they're a pro snowboarder. It's just the effect is different. Just yeah. mathematically, it's different, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. And at the time, you know, Damien was married to Brandy Sanders, who was penthouse pet of the year. And so I'm milking that 15-year-old kid from Iowa vibe at the top of the pipe, having Brandy make me peanut butter sandwiches before I drop into the pipe. <laughs> It was, she was it, was, too. it was epic i got a scrapbook from that uh with these photos of uh of my heroes and you know same vibe established pros up and coming pros i remember john boyer just fucking ripping sending it off this wind lip and john boy air boyer boy air boyer oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah it was cool and roach was there who roach was a, you know a hero of mine and you know still is and you know it's kind of funny about chris roach's you know, I've lived, you know, been snowboarding industry half my life. And I can't say that I know everybody in snowboarding, but I know almost everybody in snowboarding, or at least have come by, across almost everybody in snowboarding. And that summer, I was too scared to talk to him. <laughs> and still to this day, I've never talked to him. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I think some people, it's just nice to like keep them on the shelf, you know? And uh, one, this is a long time ago now, this is at our old office, but the phone rings and somebody answers They're like, yeah, there's Chris Roach on the phone, wants to talk to somebody about union, who wants to take it? I'm like, not me, I'm not taking that call, you know? And, uh, I, you know, I'm sure he's like the nicest dude in the world and whatever, but, you know, I just think it's fun. Some, sometimes you gotta, it's just, you got to keep your heroes heroes, mm -hmm. you know? I agree. Your little allure of mystery mm -hmm. still. Yeah, yeah, for sometimes sure. Sometimes you can be disappointed. Sometimes you're not, though. Well, one thing I want to lean on to is the talking about the summer camp, be it Hood, be it Camp of Champions, doesn't matter where, but that can alter the direction of your life. It seems like where you go, you see some pros, you see some like-minded people. It's not like Little Hill that you grow up riding. 
all of a sudden you're just like, oh, this is it. Yeah, that, I've I've had a similar experience where you're like, yep, this is this is what I yeah, want. These are my people. It. Yeah. Oh, life was altered yeah. that that summer for sure. And then from there, where did you go? Uh, from there, you know, snowboarded in Dubuque that winter. There's a resort called Sundown in Dubuque, which is on the Mississippi River nearby. You know, and um, and I gotta give a big shout out to mom. You know, my mom was back in school at the time, and every weekend she drove us to the ski resort. And it was two and a half hours from my house. Woo. And she would drive there every single weekend and sit in that lodge all day Saturday, all day Sunday. And she'd do it the next weekend and the next weekend and the next weekend. So my mom has like been my great enabler in my life, you know. And my dad was the one that teed up all these adventures, but my mom was the one that's gotten behind and supported every single thing I've ever wanted to do, including Capita. So um, thank you, Mom. You got to really her, appreciate let's the Let's give parents. her a super air horn. Oh, and a little obnoxious, but uh, the parents <laughs> that are there for the kids like that—I mean, two and a half hours every weekend—that's yeah, that is incredible. Yeah, it was cool. And so then after that, next summer it was Hood, the Hood mission for the first time. I think I have a guest question that pertains directly to what we're talking about from none other than uh, Andy Wright, incredible photographer. Photographer said, "Photographer." For those who are <laughs> unfamiliar, here we go. Hi, Bombhole. Friend of the pod, Andy, right here with a question for Blue. Blue, it's been like, well, exactly 30 years since we met. Summer of 1991 at Mount Hood, digging a half pipe by hand with shirts possibly off and definitely getting sunburned beyond belief. That's how I remember it. Hey, so I was wondering what it was like for you to make that decision to take kind of a pretty big leap of faith, jump in the car, go thousands of miles from home in search of summer snowboarding, when there really wasn't that much known about it at the time, other than maybe a small article in the magazine here and there. I mean, it's not like it was on social media or the internet, both of which obviously didn't exist at the time. And also maybe talk a little about a little bit about how, uh, how much impact that decision may have had on your path forward since then. So thanks. Looking forward to hearing the answer. Wow. Andy Wright. Legend. Legend. Thank you, Andy. Legend um, day. So, yeah, man, um, Mount Hood. So, you know, I was 16 years old. Uh, Dave Itis and Joe Stalzer, my homies, are 15 years old, a year younger than me. And we took my mom and dad's car. Um, you know, I wouldn't say we stole it. Um, they weren't here. But, you know, again, it's like they trusted me to make responsible decisions. So I would say that I just drove it without permission, you know, all the way from Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> from Iowa all the way to uh, Mount Hood. And um, yeah, so we ate ramen noodle and camped at Alpine. I don't know why that park, that campground doesn't seem to be open much anymore. But back then we camped at that high elevation campground up Mm -hmm. there by the parking lot, you know. And um, yeah, we were just, you know, low cash, dirtbag, you know, high school kids and clip and lift tickets, which you could do back then semi-successfully. And, um, and we just met people that, um, that were just amazing, inspirational people. And in terms of Andy, right, you know, one of the biggest gifts that snowboarding has given me is lifelong friends. And isn't that incredible that you meet these people that you stay in touch with and have these experiences with over 30 years? I've known Andy Wright for 30 years. That's awesome. 
That's awesome. So, yeah, Andy Wright. Oh, long-haired Andy Wright. Baked mm. lobster, sunburned Andy Wright. <laughs> Just glistening in the sun. <laughs> uh, man, uh, digging, digging the digging the pipes. But, yeah, man, we had an, an incredible – I remember meeting Dave Bastriachia up there that summer too, and there was a bun- bunch of people. But, um, yeah, we didn't know much about it, but we knew that Mount Hood – was the destination and i think my opinion is mount hood's always been kind of the cultural center of of snowboarding at least in in north america um but man we went there and i and we camped and now so that was when i was 16 years old i'm 47 years old and i have snowboarded at least one day on mount hood in the summer and camped in a tent one night at least one night every single summer of my life except for one since that summer and so it's this now it's just this thing it's like dude you got to go to hood you got to punch that ticket you just got to hit for me it's like hitting reset you know it's like you want to you want to get reconnected to snowboarding go to mount hood sleep in a tent and go ride go ride up there incredible one thing you mentioned earlier too is hand dug half pipes i think you know not all of our audience is familiar You, you look at the x games nowadays you see a 22 foot half pipe that's uh, tried digging that by hand. Glaring huh? ice, and they're doing triple corks. Uh, what was the? What did it look like? I, I'm curious about this. Like, what what did the half pipe look like? Or you guys are obviously digging with shovels, and how has it changed for better or worse on the sessions the way they used to be, and currently with snowboarding? So a couple of things. How they used to be was more like you know, rut boarding. Cause we all knew how to jump. And so if you could kind of make that line in the pipe, which is kind of a rut turn into a jump, then you could like boost and do that on different air. And that was like super fun, you know, but any, when you had like a real transition, it was more like trying to learn how to ride it. Cause we weren't, we didn't have real transitions back there. We didn't really know how to ride them. So there was kind of a learning curve there. Um, you know how it's different today. You know, I, I have, an opinion that not everyone shares, but my opinion is that the 22 foot super pipe has actually been bad for snowboarding. And I think that it's made for TV. And while I appreciate the unbelievable athleticism of the Olympic level half pipe snowboarder, I mean, these men and women are unbelievable athletes and to see them doing what they're doing at that level, spinning, 20 plus feet out of a 20 plus foot super pipe. If you go one inch to the left or the right, there's serious consequence. It's, it's super impressive. But the truth is there are a handful of people in the world that can ride that type of pipe. And there are very, very limited opportunities for people to learn how to ride that kind of a pipe. And um, I think back when we had the smaller pipe dragon days, you know, it was this thing where in order to be taken serious as a resort, everybody had to have a pipe dragon. And so at every resort, medium size, even some small ones across the Tyrell basins of the world, you know, the small resorts, everybody had a half pipe, whether it was 12 feet, 14 foot, 18 foot. And that is an extension of our, of our deep rooted skateboarding, you know, culture in snowboarding is to ride that pipe. I remember the Brighton pipe being like so packed and so many people, you're like yelling, dropping and dropping necks and you're fucking snaking people and shit like that. Cause it was so fun to ride a half pipe. Everybody had one. Now, I go to these resorts, there's a 22-foot sheet of ice, scary-ass scary hat. Nobody's riding it. Tumbleweed nobody's, going through it. Tumbleweeds. 
I know I went to Copper Mountain like last year or the year before, and I'm standing at the top of this pipe. And I'm just like, okay, let me get this straight. I used to be a paid professional snowboarder. I coached half-pipe snowboarding for a fucking decade. I've snowboarded so much in my lifetime, and I'm scared of this thing. You know, I'm going a million miles an hour down this thing to catch, what, like six inches of air? Right. Maybe yeah. I can grab. And it's scaring you out of your mind. <laughs> so, again, like, I'm not trying to take anything away. You know, I watch the you know, half-pipe under the lights of the X Games, and I am just blown away with so much stoke and appreciation. And for that, you know, I'm not, you know, no zero discredit to that. That is amazing. I'm just saying for, like, the culture of snowboarding and for the average snowboarder, I really, really wish that we still had the smaller pipe dragons and pipes across the country because they're more accessible to people. And what I feel like it's done is this, the benchmark of a 22 foot super pipe has given all those resorts an out. They can say it's too expensive. It's too much. We can't do it. We don't have the snow and therefore we're just not going to do anything at all. Yeah. No one's going to use it. They're going to say, remember how social it was too. You know, that was the coolest part. So, so, so. Everyone got to hang out and see each other and talk to each other. and Just something that we need back in snowboarding. So now you got the biggest corporate resorts. They can have a 22-foot superpipe. No other resorts have a half pipe that you can ride for fun, for fun, or to learn on. And then if, let's say, you know, you're a kid that you have a dream of being Olympian. Okay, so how does that work? You got to have rich parents that can move to Mammoth or move to, you know, Whistler so your kid can, like, learn how to ride a half pipe. You know, and it comes back to an accessibility thing and a diversity thing that, not to go down that wormhole, but there's a lot of opportunity in the snowboard industry for us to improve. Mm-hmm. Mammy's got three sizes. Well said, yeah. That's great. That's great. I haven't been there in years. So yeah. if that's if that's a new trend, that would be um, incredible. Yeah, hopefully they lead the charge on that and more people see what they're doing. I like you said, I, I same thing with some of the super pipes around the resorts I go to. It's like lifelong snowboarders that are terrified to drop into it. Yeah. Terrified. It shouldn't be. Whereas you look at a 12-footer and you're like, let's get busy, you know. Well, uh, look at look at like the you know fun. like Bodie's mini pipe jam at Hood. Yeah, everybody's psyched to do that thing. You know why? Because it's fun. Good yeah, time. exactly. Yeah. yeah, well said. Well said. Well, let's talk about. I think uh, next phase of your career, I believe, was was it the move to Utah after that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, we lived that Midwest dream in the in the you know in for, through high school and. Um, Again, you know, thanks to the parents and my friends' parents, they let us drive all the way around the Midwest, and we drove all Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, and that was the era of those those you know pipe dragon pipes, and you know the Midwest half pipe amateur half pipe scene was like a thing, you know, and so a couple of things happened. One, um, I was the nineteen ninety one or two, I can't remember. Um, like Midwest half pipe champion, Tower Basin at Tower Basin, Wisconsin, and um, that was super fun. And then um, my friend from Dubuque, he moved to Utah, and he got on the front cover of the 1992 episode, or issue of Snowboarder Magazine. And um, his name was John Krieg, and he actually uh, just passed away this, you know, um, a month ago in Park City. It's awesome, um, an air horn. Yeah. Big old air horn. Um, I'd like to give, you know, an air horn to the, the Krieg family. They were kind of a, a second family in Dubuque and just wonderful people and three sons and two are, are gone now. And Sam, the youngest one, still going strong. Sam, if you're listening, love you, man. Um, but, you know, uh, John, you know, in those Midwest days, there, there's just so many characters. You know, Ron Beretta. You know Ron Beretta, right? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, he runs Sin Skateboarding in Brack. He's fucking out the heart of the pride of Rhinelander, Wisconsin. That guy is amazing. And uh, Dave Hubach and all these old dudes. Um, but so our, our heroes, we, we'd go to these contests. I think they're a little bit older than us. When we were like sophomores in high school, they were seniors. Um, but it was Dale Rayberg, uh, Rowan Rogers, Nate Cole, and Jake Blattner. And we'd go to the, the these events in Wisconsin, and we'd see these guys and it was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. Because at that point in snowboarding, there was still kind of like some crossover, like ski fashion and it was the end of the day glow era. And I see these dudes. First of all, winters in the Midwest are cold. And these guys aren't running technical outerwear. They're running like thick gauge corduroy pants, flannel shirts, got dreadlocks of hair dyed all crazy colors, big wide stances. They looked cooler than everybody else. They were way better than everybody else they won every single contest they were the shit like they were our idols you know were those guys and so when they they like set the bar for us in terms of like what snowboarding was all about and when they left they moved to colorado and changed the game you know it's the original joyride team and type a and ride team and they were really on the forefront of like skate style and switch snowboarding and you know they're fucking legendary because how damn good they were you know but so when they were there, they won everything. And then when they left, you know, kind of me and my friends were the ones that like were kind of doing it in the Midwest, you know. Um, and then we were thinking about going to Colorado to follow them. But then John Krieg, he called and he's like, don't go to Colorado. He's like, you want to come to Utah, you know, because Colorado's popping now, but Utah is popping next and Salt Lake is going to be the spot, you know. And, um, and we thought about that in as much as we – you know, looked up to those guys, it's kind of the question of, do you want to follow them to Colorado and live in their shadow and try to be them? Or do you want to go somewhere else and try to do blaze your own trail? And so that's why we chose to move to Utah. That's crazy. He had the insight to know it was going to pop next. Colorado was really popping off. Really pop. Colorado yeah. was where it was at back it was then. where it was at. Yeah. Every pro lived there. That's where Stony Buds lived. Yeah. I, that's where I went. Didn't you live above Beaver Liquors? Yeah. That's but that was a legendary spot. That who you and Whitey spot. and who else lived there? Uh, Tarquin lived there. Cole Taylor lived there. It's kind of uh, Russell lived on our couch. Russell Winfield for a little while. It's kind of a revolving door. I think that's where we Ron, met. Ron Baird might have lived there for a little yeah, while. Yeah, Baird. It was just like a, a dresser might have lived there for. It's just a people just coming coming through. Yeah, I it remember. Was a I remember spot, the hot tub. It was like the penthouse of of Avon, Colorado. I remember going through the Beaver Liquor spot. Right um, the liquor store. Woo. Sidebar, it always da- like Pool you can always table. tell how long somebody's known Stony Buds by when they call him Ethan. And you've been uh, calling <laughs> Ethan. I bet some of our listeners are like, Who is he who's Ethan? Who's Ethan? <laughs> Who are they talking about? <laughs> but uh Stony Buds' real name's Ethan for the listeners that are yeah, unfamiliar. It's a fact. Stony Stone Buds is my middle name. Stone. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I've known I've known Stony Buds so long I call him Ethan. That's that's a fact. <laughs> Back to 1400s, right, Chris? Yeah, it's real, <laughs> it was pre-electricity, uh, churn your own butter type of era. We were churning butter. You guys were churning butter, yeah. <laughs> so. so here's how I justified it to my parents. I told them that I was going to go to school and I was going to move to Utah to go to the University of Utah. So I graduated high school, went home, packed my shit, drove across the country by myself, stopped at the, the Chevron on Foothill Drive and asked them how to get to the dorms at the University of Utah. And I started college two days after high school. Um, and, uh, one of the reasons I did that is back then the university of Utah was on quarters, not semesters. So you could go summer and fall and take the whole winter off and snowboard. Mm. I'm curious, how do you go, 
how do you go right from high school? Because summer classes? Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, that makes sense. Okay, Wow, two days after high school, right? To, did you... Did you graduate? Yeah, I did not. Yeah. I did not graduate. So, yeah, I, I majored in marketing, creative writing, and um, wanted to have that experience, but let's be honest. Yeah. At that point in my life, I was just obsessed with snowboarding and drinking I, beer. I and, will say you were kind of like the frat director of our crew as far as, like, partying and Papsula Ribbon and football and getting the crew to, to do a lot of fun stuff. Yeah, I've just kind of been like the, uh, you know... Organizer. Organizer of good times. The organizer of good times. Yeah. I, I'll take that. I'll take a camp director, camp counselor yeah. title. That's fair. When, when we wanted to have like a Thanksgiving football game, this guy contacts Paps Blue Ribbon, and next thing we know, there's someone from Paps flying out. Crushing can. Well, they're bringing out cans and like the marketing directors mm-hmm. flying out to hang with us. Do you know that about the Paps Bowl? Just for a friendly I, game. I, I don't think so. No, I don't know if yeah, I know. A friendly game of football. So uh, Paps Blue Ribbon, the emergence of Paps Blue Ribbon in the, in the 90s and early 2000s, was kind of an anomaly because all these beer companies were spending, you know, millions, tens of millions of dollars marketing their product, and Paps didn't spend any money. Yet Paps just kept gobbling market share and more and more and more. And how they did it is they said, hey, you know, we're not going to advertise traditionally. We're not going to go hire these famous people. We're going to sit back and see who just naturally um, supports our product, and then we're going to support them. And so. You know, I we concocted this crazy thing with you know Rob Campbell, who was the editor of Snowboarder at the time, and we made this like silly game because you're a football fan, Absolutely. right? Yeah. So back then, I was the only one. Yep. My friends didn't care, and the reason why is there was this divide back then of like jock culture and skateboard mm-hmm. culture, yep. and not only were the skaters and snowboarders not football fans, they actually disliked like the jock mentality. Yes. And so I had to like concoct these creative ways to get the friends together just to drink beer, just to watch the Super Bowl, you know? Mm-hmm. And so anyway, we, we uh, made this silly thing that was super funny. And, um, but in the end, uh, this is kind of wild, but there was a story in the Wall Street Journal and they asked, I, I, had, I had the president of Pep's Brewing Company on speed dial on my phone. You know, that's how, that's how tight it got, <laughs> you know? And there was an article in the Wall Street Journal and they basically asked Paps Blue Ribbon, like how they did it. And they gave credit to two groups specifically, Urban Bike Messengers and some Pro Snowboarders from Utah. Yes, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, gobbling up that market share because uh, snowboarders are just And then everybody drinking Paps. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> well, while we're talking about good times, I think it could be time to uh, get into the old pub beer crap oh, shoot, huh, buds? Yeah. First things first, what, do you, what do you got going on over there, buds? Get a little uh, pub beer. What's their motto? Cheap, fun beer. Absolutely. Now, if you're going to a football game uh, these days and you want to crush a couple cans, what are you going to pick up, Buds? I'm going to pick up a uh, delicious pub beer lager. Absolutely. Well, with that being said, uh, they support us. You should support them. Let's get into the pub beer crapshoot. Welcome to the pub beer crapshoot. All right, Blue. Um... Basically, how it works is you just roll two dice, and we'll tell you what you got to do. There you go. Let's go. Lucky dice. I got a seven. 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 Uh, this is my favorite question on the sheet, courtesy of the good people over at Pub Beer. Who is one of your favorite people to party with? I would say uh, Jason Bump. <laughs> can't even. He can't even last the whole night. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> That guy. <laughs> what what made him so particularly good at partying? I don't know, Ethan. What do you think? Dude, he he eventually <laughs> is just like 
a, turns into a different person, you know? Like, I, you just see it in his eyes when it happens. Like, he's staring through you kind well, of Well, he's, like, walking and acting, and but he's not there. Okay. And yeah. I guess he makes it through the night, but I don't know, man. He he turns into an animal, so I guess good times. Well, first of all, let's clarify that, you know, I think uh, he's a very responsible and mature family man yes. and a professional these days. Yeah. Uh, just want to make that clear. But back in the day, God damn, was a fun party in the bump. Yeah. Dude, we have, you know, man, I don't know how many wormholes you want to get down with. Dude, but bump is just, wow. I remember, I remember that time we were in Vegas and Marky Mark was there. Yes. <laughs> so I had met Mark Wahlberg before. I went to the MTV Video Music Awards once. And uh, that's like back when Tina was dating Dave Grohl and um, we we're all super tight with Tina. And um, I had a friend that was in charge of wardrobe at MTV. And so anybody that was on MTV had to go through her off, you know, office to get outfitted before they're on camera. And I was actually back in Mexico doing something different at the time. And uh, she called, she's like, hey, you want to be my date to the MTV Video Music Awards? And I was like, I don't have any money and I'm in Mexico and I don't have anything to wear. She's like, dude, you know what I do for a living? Like, I'll give you something to wear. And so I, I'm like, all right. So I go there. She gives me a $5,000 one-of-a-kind Hugo Boss suit. And because I knew Tina and I knew Dave and I knew these other people and like Adam Young from the Beastie Boys like stay at Tina's house. So I knew these people enough that there's like the VIP level and then there's like the VIP VIP level. And I'm at that extra super cool dude party where I'm literally the only not famous person there. Okay. <laughs> every, you know how weird it is to be in an environment when you're not used to being around celebrities and everywhere you look and every single person is a celebrity except you. And I'm sure they're all wondering like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> but you know what? I was double fist and double jack cokes and a $5,000 suit. So they just assumed yeah, you know, was somebody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I partied them that night and then you fast forward, we go to, to, um, to hard, hard rock to Vegas and we're walking in and we see Mark and just like, Oh, Hey, what's up? And, um, He's like, what's up? And uh, I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, well, you know, we're going to the strip club. Did he remember you? Yeah. So that's how Talking that Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, yeah, Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, Mark Wahlberg. Marky Mark He's like, he's like, well, the we're, funky bunch. He's like we're, we're going to the strip club. And in my mind, that means like, oh, okay, cool. You know, have fun. Like, maybe see you later, you know? And, uh, and he walks and he turns like 10 steps and he turns around. He's like, you guys coming? And Bump is just like, oh, fuck yeah. And Bump like charges after, hops in his limo, was on the Marky Puked Mark train the whole time. <laughs> Got puke all over the side of his limo, uh. too. <laughs> I remember leaving the club that night. I was having the best night of our lives, and Bump was passed out under the bar stools. And I remember being so drunk. I was just like, later, Bump. <laughs> and he just was sleeping there and i forgot to even take him with me but he obviously made it home he's still around well let's make something clear there's uh rules uh, for celebrities and there's rules for the rest of us and when you walk into a fine gentleman's establishment with uh someone like you know marky mark there's a different set of rules that you get Way to abide different. by and that was pretty interesting to see there was like a line of girls to meet him like a hundred hundred girls d i think they all started calling their friends probably to come down probably what a night. All right. No more bump stories. <laughs> I have one sidebar interesting note on my notes here that I'm curious about. I heard you were Louis Vito's coach at nine years old. That's right. Yeah. Little Louis. Nine, nine-year-old Louis. I saw that when I came I in here. Saw the uh, saw Louis, Louis up there on the wall. Mm, yep. But you can imagine, you, if you know Louis Vito, you know how just positive and charismatic and fun that dude is. And could you imagine like a nine-year-old Louis Vito? Oh, my God. <laughs> and his dad is up there. <laughs> his dad is so cool, too. And- 
Um, but yeah, I was coaching the camp of champions and that experience for me was, was wonderful. I was the very first American hired at the camp of champions. Ken Achenbach thought I was Canadian when he found out that he hired quote unquote, a fucking Yankee. He was pissed. (laughs) 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 And, um, but yeah, that, um, that was kind of like, you know, those formative years for me where snowboarding turned from like something I loved into like the professional snowboarding. And when I moved out here to Salt Lake City, I lived with my good friend, Ben Bubba Dodds. And uh, Dodds um, was like the best snowboarder of our Midwest crew and got me to come out here. And then um, he went to SIA because back in the day when the trade show was in Vegas, everybody would go there with their sponsor me tapes and you'd go booth to booth to booth of the companies and show them your sponsor me tape, try to get snowboard. So I was still going to school at the time and I couldn't go. And so Ben went to the show and he came back and uh, he walks in the door and he's like, guess what? And I'm like, what? And he's like, I got sponsored. And I'm like, really? And he's like, and you did too. Because on his sponsoring tape, there's like a couple clips at the end, you know, of me. And so he comes back with free boards from White House Snowboards of Huntington Beach, California. And uh, that was our, our first like free, you know, ride. And there was a couple guys on White House Snowboards, Omar Lundy, which was uh, like big. He ended up having like a big career with Burton after that. And then Waylon Edwards, who ended up being like a Sims pro. But Waylon lived in Whistler. And uh, he was like, you should come up, you know, in the summer to Whistler. And I hadn't been up since Craig's camp. And so I'm like, all right, you know, I'll come up there. And so I drove to Whistler. And uh, I remember being at the border and the Canadian customs officer asked me how much money I had. And I told him six bucks. Um, lesson, do not tell the Canadian's customs officer that you don't have any money because they won't <laughs> let you in, <laughs> you know. So I, I circle back, get myself into Canada, land on Whalen's couch. And uh, he was working at the keg. He'd like swoop potato, baked potatoes at the end of the night and bring them home for me. I ate baked potatoes for like breakfast, lunch, and dinner and sleep on the couch. But anyway, uh, the camp of champs was going on. And I, I wanted to go up there and I had no in. And I, I, it was like a real, that Canadian scene at the time was like real tight. And there's no real breaking into it. And so one day I'm by myself and I can't remember what I had to do in Squamish, but I drove down to Squamish for something and on the way back to Whistler, I see this girl with her, you know, thumb out hitchhiking. So I pick her up and I'm like, hi. She's like, hi. I'm like, what's your name? She's like, Jen. Or she's like, Jibber. Introduce herself to Jibber. I'm like, your name's Jibber? She's like, yeah, Jibber Jen. And Jibber Jen is like an absolute gem of a human being. I'm talking quite possibly the nicest person in a country that's famous for nice people. You know, she is amazing. And so we became fast friends. And on the way, on the drive to Whistler, Jibber Jen's like, hey, I'm on lunch crew at the Camp of Champs. And tonight, all the girls, we're making lunch. Do you want to come over and help us make lunch? So number one, I like cute girls. And number two, I was fucking hungry. So of course, I'm going to go <laughs> make lunch with the girls. So I'm there. I'm the only guy. We're making the sandwiches for next day's camp. And then they're like, hey, tomorrow morning, we got to take all these tins up to base camp. Like, will you help us carry them up there? So I'm like, all right. So I get to uh, I get to the you know, chairlift early in the morning. I'm with a tin full of sandwiches. They don't check my lift ticket because I didn't have one. And I'm with the camp. And so I take that tin up, the chairlift, up the bus, all the way up to Horseman's Glacier. Side slip down the bottom of the pipe. And I ask Bruce Irving, who's in charge of Camp of Champs at the time. He's like, hey, I brought these lunches up. Can I, can I ride? He's like, nope. You know, like hard ass. No, you know, like get the fuck out of here. No. So I'm like, okay. 
So I leave, you know, and then the next night, made those sandwiches. Next day, brought that tin up. Hey, Bruce, can I ride? No. You know, I did it a day, day after day after day all summer long, brought those damn lunches up. Now, at this point, I'm homies with a lot of the Canadian dudes, Sheen Campos and Al Clark and Hager and like, De- you know, Dennis Bannock and like all the, those, you know, Maury and all those dudes, like I was friends with them. So it was kind of like a joke watching me slide slip down the middle of the pipe with a lunch tin and nobody's going to, everybody knows I'm not going to get to snowboard, you know? <laughs> and so, um, at the, uh, it was like the last week of camp, last week of camp, I bring those lunches through and I'm just like, I think I didn't even ask that day. And Bruce is like, Hey blue, get up there. And so I rode my ass off that last week of camp, snaking those campers. <laughs> like it was going out of style <laughs> you know? and no pay here. Right. Uh, not that year I didn't get paid. No, yeah. I just got to ride. But that one week, <laughs> that one week, you know, so it was a, a summer full of effort for that one week. But dedication after that, I went, you know, the Utah that next summer or that next winter in Utah is when like things started to materialize and I started getting pictures in the magazine, started getting better sponsors, started getting paid. And then I got went back up to Canada and that's when I actually got a job, you know, coaching that next summer. And then I coached at the Camp Champs for, I think, six summers or something like that in a row. Um, but man, such great friends and um, you know, spent so much time up there in Whistler that, um, it was just cool that I kind of had two scenes and two homes. I had, a, I had the friend group in Salt Lake city in the winter. And then I had that friend group in Whistler in the summer and, um, and it was pretty awesome. Also amazing. The profound effect riding year round can have on your, on your snowboarding, the amount of board time you end up getting so, so good and so quick if you're on the board year round. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't counting, but I was snowboarding a lot in those years, you know, if you want to do the daily daily count. Um, but I think what, you know, is a cool takeaway from that story is, you know, I see I see a lot of young kids that want to live the snowboard dream, and they're kind of waiting for other people to make it happen. And there's kind of a lot of excuses about why it doesn't happen and this, that. And it's like, man, sometimes you have to make your own opportunities. Sometimes you have to, you know, understand when people say no, Take it with stride and re- take it respectfully. But, you know, if you feel like you have something to contribute and something to offer, you need to find creative ways to to create your own place and make it happen. Well said. And I know that kind of also aligns with, uh, I, I know one of your biggest sponsors over your career or, or longest running sponsor was Vans. And there's kind of a similar trajectory there. Yeah, I was so appreciative of that. So I saw Rob Dow, um, who has a snowboard company called Wired Snowboards in Vancouver now. Rob's awesome, doing a great job. But um, I saw him one day with the all-white Vans moon boots, which was the very first pair of snowboard boots Vans made. And uh, I tracked down Scott Sissimus, who was the team manager at the time. And um, I somehow, I don't know, asked, he said yes, I got on Vans, but I was the second snowboarder on Vans ever. And I rode for Vans my entire snowboard career. Um, they are the only sponsor that when i was done at the end had to call them and say thank you very much but don't send me a paycheck next month i'm done and vans sent me around the world you know for years and i met so many great people and had so many great experiences and um i'm just so you know appreciative of that um that sponsor at that time of my life and you know another thing for kids to kind of understand you know it's not always about money you know um you know, I had, it, when I first got on Vans, I mean, I think I was making, I was making a hundred bucks a month, you know, and then I was making 250 bucks a month. Um, 
but I just felt so connected to that brand. And I mean, you remember back then, dude, I was getting, I had two pairs of shoes on auto ship a month. Now that sounds excessive and that doesn't really align with some of my current sustainable initiatives. But when you're a young kid and I got a fresh pair of sneakers at the bar every other Friday, you know, that's some next level shit, <laughs> you know? And, um, I remember one time at Bubba's bar, Bubba backed up while he was out of town and shit all over his, uh, stack of shoes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> little separation anxiety <laughs> it was so tight with blue <laughs> little spiteful shit to yeah. kind of uh, blue was out of town and we had a party yeah. and woo. i'm a stack of van sneakers yeah, oh I, man all up inside them but yeah so i, I definitely um have fond memories and you know, all these years later, um, you know, it doesn't happen all the time, but every once in a while, unsolicited, I get a box of vans on my doorstep and, you know, you know, for the kids too. And I, I just like, I just think that's really cool and I really appreciate it, you know. That's way Killer. cool. Well, while we're on the subject of your professional career, I think it could be a good time to get into you know what. What's Ooh. that, Buds? Name that video part. Name that video part is presented by Mammoth Mountain. Buds, it's peak season right now. How's the park looking? How is the park? How are the eight parks doing? How are they doing? It's peak season. They are firing right now. Firing. Three half pipes spread around that mountain. I mean, this mountain is going off right now. The park, I'm guessing, is so good right now, you could probably dust off a Switch McTwist right now. Maybe. I don't know. I'm getting old, but a little practice, maybe. <laughs> We're still pushing for the rename of the mini pipe to Bud's mini pipe. Um, or Bud's little playground, either, yeah, Bud's, either way. I don't know how well that one would do. All right, Bud's, Bud's but, mini pipe. So, if you, uh, one thing that's cool, if you know the name that video part, part two, and you comment on it, you get four tickets from our friends over at Mammoth. Four tickets. That's huge. Mm-hmm. Bring, bring your crew. You bring your crew. If you got, uh, if you're single, parent and you got three kids you know you could bring four you could bring three friends you bring three strangers you could bring three strangers that'd actually be the pretty dope move yeah just pick or just pick three random strangers and say hey you want to go to mammoth make their day let them experience that grandiose mountain absolutely mammoth is a big supporter of the show so uh be sure to show them some love and tag them at mammoth mountain blue how are you feeling (laughs) oh man um confidence level just diminished (laughs) The whole episode just got deflated when you heard that <laughs> theme Sam song come on. on. Uh, confidence level zero through ten. Let's go three. 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 Okay. All right. Let's see how you do here, Blue. This could be big for your credibility. Here we go. Um. So I don't know, but just stylistically, that sounds like a Whitey movie. That's hard, hungry, and yeah, homeless. Yeah, I was going to say H-H-H. Oh, okay. So if it's hard, hungry, and the homeless, then... I don't know which rider, though. Um, if you're teeing it up for me, I would assume it has to have uh, some Midwest roots, so I'm going maybe uh, Roan Rogers on that one. We've done Roan before. That's Noah Selaznick. Oh, Noah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. I just went H H H. I thought that was your era. I thought that was in your wheelhouse. That's that is. It should know. have been, but it's been a long time. It's right? been a long time, yeah. yeah. But yeah. hey, here's to Noah, man. What an amazing yeah. dude and snowboarder and contribution contributor to snowboard history. R I P. It's actually really good for me to go back and watch that part for inspo. It's so sick how, yeah. how the videos were back in the day. Oh yeah. Oh man, just the simple joys of uh, watching somebody do 
a, a melon grab off of a bump and yeah, poke and he it had all that sick. Tweak. You know, you still get a participation award, my friend. Oh yeah, you do. Really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, we're we not going to send you home empty-handed. What's he getting, buds? You get a box of goods. All right. Courtesy of the Bombhole. Sweet. All Thank available you. at bombhole.com. You got mugs. You got all sorts of nice stuff in there. Burgundy snowboard mug. Big little burgundy. Little care package, if you will. Thank you, guys. Probably an air freshener. Yeah. Probably some sort of hat or really, shirt. Really appreciate it. Thank you. No problem. For, no part, cooler, for part two, this goes to the uh, listeners. If you know the video part, when this episode comes out, comment on the photo of blue on our Instagram. That's where we pick our winner for name that video part, and let's see how you do. Okay, thank wow. you guys for playing name that video part. It's a tough one. Just someone banging on a glass bottle or something there. That's a. Actually, I can't actually mention because it'll okay, give it away. What, what's his name? <laughs> Gonna maybe guess that. Okay, Blue. Well, I've heard you mention this before, and our listeners may be unfamiliar, but I've heard you talk about your war on Cheeto fingers. Now, I'd love for you to elaborate for those who are unfamiliar. <laughs> That's right, Chris. I am actually <laughs> at war <laughs> with Cheeto fingers. So what Cheeto fingers is all about is... uh you know, I just have a desire to get these kids off the couch, get them to put the bag of Cheetos down. Their eyes are bleeding from the screen. They got blisters on the fingers from the damn video game controller. Let's get them outside, breathing some fresh air, having some fun, you know. And uh, why is it a war? Well, it's challenging because what they're seeing on that couch is very stimulating. And um, I feel like it's being harder and harder to engage kids in snowboarding because our industry is getting more conservative. And you look in the past in different eras of snowboard history, I mean, snowboarding used to be bad. Snowboarding, you know, people, skiers hated us. People didn't want us around. And um, there's uh, the, the whiskey legacy and the debauchery and the punk rock era and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that we go back there, um, but, when snowboarding was bad, it was fun and it was engaging and it stimulated teenagers and wanted us to get out there. And now I think that there's this desire from the industry and I don't even know who that is. I don't even know who I'm talking about when I say the industry, but there's this desire to be accepted in the mainstream, to be a sport, to be an activity. And, um, and, and everybody so badly doesn't want to offend anybody and everybody's so easily offended these days. And man, like when you make snowboards, you know, now there's like rules from retailers, not just one retailer, a bunch of retailers, like of things that you can't do as a snowboard brand. Like you can't make a snowboard graphic that has nudity on it. You can't have profanity on it. You can't have guns on it. You can't have religion on it. You can't have any societal touch points on it. I mean, you can, but no retailer will buy it. But you're not going to sell them, huh? And I'm just like, for a certain part of our audience, that we are trying to engage. If you think the art on snowboarding, on the art on snowboards is offensive, you just don't know the content in video games and movies and popular culture and pop music. You're not plugged into what kids are doing, you know? And so I'm not like, uh, I'm not 
advocating for like irreverence for the sake of irreverence. But my goal, like the goal I want to send to the mom and dads with credit cards, the conservative parents, the retail buyers, I say, we're on the same team. We want the same thing. You know, we want to get kids off the couch, put the Cheeto bag down, and let's use whatever resources that are at our disposal to do it. And if snowboards and art, because that's all snowboard graphics are, it's just art. If we can use snowboards and art to get kids off the couch, let's go. Well said. Well said. And I have a side footnote too. When you start a snowboard company, you know, in the same way Buds and I have started this thing, the, the whole fun concept behind especially products is, oh, I have an idea for a product. Let's just fucking make it. Let's make what we want. Let's make what we want. Let's not make what fits into like this, a retailer's box of approved things. But that's a huge part of it is like, we want to make the products that we want to make. That's what makes it fun. Right. Yeah. And, and then if all of a sudden, you, you know, snowboarding is not about rules. It's not about doing every it's about going against the fucking rules for that matter and the more that you try to like choke down on it and make it this watered down thing it's like you're cannibalizing it in some ways well there's a a bunch of you know business reasons why people would want to take a conservative approach to product you know on one hand the snowboarder isn't the same that it was you know now it's a much broader segment of society that snowboards and we want to appeal to all these people which is which is great i want to too um, you know, but there's always going to be this kind of core, um, at, at the, at the heartbeat of snowboard culture. And that's the, the, the younger guys and gals, you know, in let's just say for, you know, a 12 to 24 year old age group, you know, and you know how hard it is to make something cool for those kids. If you can't do anything even remotely dangerous. Yeah. If you got to follow all those rules, huh? dude, danger is the core of cool. It really is. <laughs> It's a fact. <laughs> I like that epiphany or yeah. the way you've dissected that. That's incredible. There's also a degree of maybe for better or worse, being a snowboarder that cares, right? That cares about the thing. You want snowboarding to look cool. You want snowboarding to be when I look like when, when I watch a, a skateboard video, a lot of the ones I watch, I'm like, that shit looks cool. That looks awesome. Like I'm proud to be a skateboarder. And you want the same thing with the products and snowboarding. You want the same thing with the videos and snowboarding. You want people to say, Hey, I'm proud to be a part of this thing. And if you water all the products down, you lose some of that, I think, right? Yeah. Um, it's not the shop's fault either. It's the people coming into the shops, the parents that are demanding it. Yeah. The good thing is, though, I think the flip side to that is as snowboarding has a wider customer base that's come in, I think the industry has really focused on technology and the snowboarding experience. And I would say that is the ultimate positive, you know, where snowboarding used to be so much about image and so much about art and so much about graphics. You know, now it's really about what makes this experience easier, what makes this experience more inviting uh, and what ultimately brings more people in into the sport. And, you know, we've we've focused on that too and done a lot um of techno technological advancements in the product pro- products and um so i think there's like that's kind of where the balance currently lies you know well said well said and there's no there is no quote-unquote core snowboarder without the beginner snowboarder. all, all every snowboarder is a beginner at some mm-hmm. point you got to get everyone into it. starts somewhere um one thing before we're going to obviously cover the the story of capita and founding it that we're going to get into that in a little bit that's you know going to be Awesome. I can't wait to dive into that. But before we do, you know, personally fascinated with the fact that you're a parent 
and that, that part of your life. And one thing I want to ask you about is when I look at you, you seem like somebody that's like found balance with running a company and managing your family. And how do you, I'm personally interested, like how did you find your balance? Um, the balance has changed over the years, of course, but right now I find the balance is, is very simply that I'm a family man first, I'm a dad first, and I 100% prioritize my kids and my family. That's it. That's where my emotional energy goes and all of my emotional energy goes to the kids. Um, that said, you know, capita and snowboarding is something that's so deep in my heart and so deep in my soul um, and snowboarding is the thing that's enabled me to meet my wife and it's enabled me to provide for our life. And it's something wonderful that I get to share with my kids. And when I have that experience, it inspires me to be better at my job and give more on the capita end and the union end, you know? And so it's almost this like cycle that happens where there's no mistaking. I'm a family first type person. Um, you know, some people work to live and some people live to work. And, you know, I work to live. I put a pri premium and a priority on the family. But that all works together. And if you do it right, and if you are fulfilled at home, that fills you full of energy and strength to be the best that you can be, you know, at your job. Wow. Well said. That was uh Something I needed to hear. So I really appreciate that. And as far as your parenting, I know you have kind of an analog approach to parenting. Yeah, we are definitely big analog parents. So, you know, I'm not delusional. I understand that my kids are living in a different world. They're living in the age of technology. Uh, we want them to be proficient in the world in which they'll live. And so we're not like anti-technology people or anti-screen people. But we know that they will get that experience um, elsewhere. They get it at friends' houses when they go over and play. They get it at school, which, um, to my dismay, they have, you know, screens in first grade in public schools, you know? First grade. Yeah. Um, so at home, we put um, a premium on analog experiences. Uh, we believe that that, uh, gives a strong emotional foundation um, for life. And for us, it's just, it's never been like a gender thing. You know, Jackie and I didn't find out the the gender of our kids and it had nothing to do with this big reveal or a big secret. It had everything to do with, you know, our philosophy that we weren't trying to raise, you know, little girls or little boys. We we're trying to raise good humans and good kids. And to a certain age, this family is going to do what this family is going to do. And it doesn't matter if they're girls or boys. So we hike and we bike and we fish and we camp and we ski and we snowboard and we are outdoors a lot. And we just really believe that, um, that's just going to give them a great foundation. Yeah. A lot of parents still even take their kids camping and throw them with an iPod in the, in the or an iPad in the corner on the tent or whatever, and just let them, let them do that instead of actually experience what they're, out there to do so that's cool you know getting your kids out there young we are kids out there real young and it's kind of funny when you're in nature with real young kids whether it's at the ski resort or out in the mountains or camping summer winter it doesn't matter i i have found two types of responses you get um you get judgment either way but you get some people that are like fuck yes you know hell yeah dad like way to go and then you get people that completely judge you for especially when your kids are like real little you know 
And then, but I, I just think that this is kind of the importance of preparation and the importance of gear. Um, it really doesn't matter if you're, you know, three or if you're 30, if you're wet and you're cold, you're not going to have fun. And if you're dry and you're warm, that puts you in a position to have fun. And uh, a lot of parents don't want to invest in good gear for kids because they grow so fast. And I understand it's expensive. But because kids, kids grow so fast, there's so many opportunities to get hand-me-down stuff and secondhand stuff. Um, but the one thing I'd say to parents out there is, you know, if you want your kids to like it, you got to have gear. They got to be warm. They got to be dry. You take them snowboarding cold. They're, they're never going to want to go back. Yeah, and, the, and you know, you're, you're totally right. And, and that kind of comes back to, you know, Jackie and I have very carefully curated um, the outdoor adventure and the outdoor experience. And what I mean by that is we've set them up for success in nature. And we've done that, one, by gear. We've done that, two, by layers. I call it layers of experiences. So we take them up for just real short time, real short time, real short time, real short time. Make sure they have fun every time. And this is really hard to do um, because like sometimes if you're a parent, you understand like just getting the kids out of the house is hard, getting all the gear together, getting them in the damn car. And then that can take an hour or more. And then you drive an hour or more to the resort. And sometimes you're there for 15 minutes and you leave. You know how many days I've spent an hour getting ready, hour to drive there, hour to drive back, hour deep. I'm four hours in for a 15 minute experience, <laughs> but I've done that over and over and over again because you got to get them up there and you got to leave before they're ready to leave. You know, and if and you know if your kids are crying on the hill, you're fucking blowing it. You're up there too long. Yeah. And if you know that you say, kids, get in the car. And your kids are crying and throw a fit because they don't want to leave the mountain. That's when you're doing it right. Yes. So you got to leave that mountain ten minutes before they want to leave the mountain. And um, and another thing, I always you know we incentivize the experience. So you know at home we we um, you know we don't have a, you know, our household we don't have a lot of candy and sweets. You know our house isn't the kind of house where there's just like cookies and stuff like hanging out. You know, um, but you know we use that to reinforce positive experiences so we skittles we call skittles fun pellets and lily's like you know when lily was two years old lily in the truck fun pellet boom lily in the scary parking lot fun pellet boom get lily to the magic carpet fun pellet boom top of the magic carpet fun pellet down on a snowboard fun pellet you know <laughs> reminds me of uh, reminds me of yeah, training my dog that's how he trained his dog you know what it's not so different it's not so different you know it's a positive reinforcement for an experience and it's very similar you know well, some people are saying oh that doesn't work you shouldn't do that but i'll tell you it works for us yeah it sounds like especially if they don't get it at home right yeah when i when i think back of my childhood too my fondest experiences are skiing and snowboarding and all of that so it's cool that you're doing that for your kids yeah, I love it, man. I just, uh, you know, I'm just so excited. You know, so the kids ski and snowboard both. And, um, you know, Maddie's uh, six and and ripping on skis and still working on her snowboarding. And Lily, all she wants to do is snowboard. But when she gets a little bit older and this family's getting ready to, like, go, you know, together, like, man, it's going to be fun. Yeah, that's going to be sick. That's killer. Along these lines, uh, I think we have a perfect Patreon question that kind of ties into this topic. All right, we have a Patreon question from Eric Leon. Hey, Blue, stoked to meet you a few times over the years. 
Let's hear about your new side hobby of BMX racing. How did you get into it, and what has it provided you in the off-season? Eric, what is up? Thank you for the question. Um, always love running into you. Our conversations are great. Eric's awesome, man. Eric's one of those dudes. He's a ripping snowboarder, but he his approach is about more than snowboarding. He really cares about the environment and aligns himself with brands that are doing things the right way. So um, congratulations to you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's part of our, our whole path, you know. It's like, is it weird that, you know, I run a snowboard company and my kids ski and snowboard? Well, our attitude is we want our kids to fall in love with nature. And I really don't care what the kids do up there it, as long as they're having fun. And, you know, I'd go up there, I'd put skis in the car, snowboards in the car, sleds in the car. We're just going to the mountain, and when we get out, do whatever you want. Let's have fun. And so we're always looking for, for fun things to do. And when COVID hit, you know, as a parent, there we couldn't do a lot of the activities. Um, you know, like we couldn't do soccer anymore. We couldn't do gymnastics anymore. We couldn't do dance anymore. And um, ja- uh, Maddie, we live right by this BMX track, and um, I'd never been there before. So I took Maddie there. She learned how to ride a bike. And um, she rode there a couple times and had fun. And since then, we have just dove, like, head first into BMX. And it's awesome. You know, as a kid, I never raced BMX. I never had a BMX bike. Bikes haven't been a big part of my past. You know, I've skateboarded and snowboarded my whole life. That's it, you know. And here's what I've learned about BMX. In terms of, like, youth sports, you know, one, it's accessible. You think about select soccer, dance, all this stuff, it's expensive. And even in snowboarding, we're trying to find ways to make it more equitable and accessible. But with the rising cost of lift tickets and gear, it's a hard it's a hard problem to solve. And BMX, if you track's in a public park, you can go ride for free. You know, race day costs eight all you need is a bike and eight bucks. And for kids, it's one hundred percent participation. No kid sits on the bench. And it's especially empowering for little girls. And, you know, you think about the gender divide in sports in our society. You know, there's this presumption from the very beginning that girls aren't even capable to compete against guys without even finding out. You know, that's why we have baseball. We have softball. We have men's and women's soccer. And, you know, even in snowboarding, we strive for more parity and equal prize money. But, you know, the girls don't compete head-to-head against the boys. And, and BMX, how it starts, regardless of age, if you're, you know, could be five years old, you could be 35 years old. When you start is a non gender defined sport. Everybody races everybody. And the only way to move up is to win. And so if you go to a race and you see a, a race of all girls, that's the girls expert class. Those girls had to beat the boys, their age and proficiency 10 times. So think about that. These girls, they didn't just string together like a second, fourth, seventh, twelfth place finish. They didn't get lucky and beat the boys once. They beat the boys ten times. And so what that means is these girls aren't pretty good for a girl. They're just good. And as a parent, I love the lessons that uh, my girls can can find out there that that I don't have to teach that we don't have to teach, and one of the lessons that they're learning from BMX is you know like I don't know what they're gonna do when they grow up, but the lesson is someday you want to be a pretty good dentist for a girl, or do you want to be a good dentist? Yeah, do you want to be a pretty good artist for a girl, or do you want to be a good artist? Because at BMX, these girls are not pretty good for a girl. 
they're just good. That's cool. Um, I did not know that about BMX. Well said. Uh, incredible. And and a couple of the sidebars in, in that, and I think are also good, in, that I like about those type of sports. When you take um, take BMX, you know, I always talk about on the show, it always goes to, like, motocross. I'm, I'm a fanatic riding dirt bikes. And you're either, you either win or you, you're faster. It's not subjective, which I think is really cool. Like, you want to get better, be faster. It's nobody else's nobody else's fault it's all up to you of whether you're faster or not faster than that other person so there's there's nobody to blame oh he didn't pass me the puck or whatever team shit or or what however you can get into it snowboarding subjective i mean i did a 900 and he you know he held his grab longer whatever it is you know um and then one other thing i I also wanted to pick your brain on from your experience uh how does it feel to be kind of a, a novice at something to, to start? You've done skateboarding and snowboarding your whole life. Now you go into BMX and you're, you're a beginner again. Yeah. That part was a trip, man, because in the community, there are so many parallels with snowboarding and skateboarding, but as the activity, it's totally different. You know, like when we started, I didn't even know how to change a tire. I don't know anything about gearing. I don't know anything about the bikes, the sizes, even what kind of bike you should get. I know nothing about it. And you know, one big difference as we started racing, I mean, we raced a lot, like I raced over 50 races in the last year, you know? And, um, you know, in my mind, I understand the lines and the flow and the transition and all that stuff. Um, but what's really different is the level of fitness required and the price you pay when you fall, you know, falling on a bike hurts and you know, you can get hurt. And I spent a lot of my last year, you know, on one hand, I'm excited to go into this winter because I feel stronger and in a better level of fitness, physical fitness than I have in years. But on the other hand, I've been fucking broke off for half the year, you know? And uh, so, you know, just like that has been a, a huge thing. But, you know, in terms of the community, uh, there's just so many great people and it's just been a lot of fun. And, um, and you know, again, for kids, it's just breathing fresh air and, you know, and, being outside and doing fun stuff. It's, it's awesome. A couple, a couple parallels too. I want to kind of connect on there too. The, you know, Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. I've ever read that, but it's this, it's, it's real stuff. Like, and same with the BMX. That's the one thing I do miss about snowboarding. Sure. You can take your time and curate your setup and put your stickers on and, but it's not something that requires daily maintenance. And I'll, I'll tell my lady, I'll just be like, Hey Leah, I need give me two hours. I'm going to the garage and that's my time to like kind of have with myself and turn some wrenches. And, and, uh, I don't know why I love that, but, but uh, it's probably the same in BMX, right? Yeah. Tinkering's fun. Yeah. You know, I just, yeah. You know, going back to the boat thing, I love being on the dock, talking to the old dudes and just tinkering on boats. And I love being in the pits, you know, talking to dudes about bikes, tinkering, learning more about it. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, so yeah, it's fun. And I heard you, uh, you got some good results this year. We did, yeah. So Maddie was a six-year-old expert girl, Washington State champion. Ooh. And uh, Northwest Series number two. So she's called, loving it. It's called Gold Cup. It's like the Northwest Series. So she got number two. It's incredible. And what kind of number plates are we looking at? Uh, so she got a gold number two and a blue number one for expert state champ. And then um, I got a couple of number one plates myself. Wow. Really? The number one plates. <laughs> Look at the Montgomery family out there just crushing it. <laughs> trophy, just stacks of trophies? Yeah, stacks of trophies you in know, the trophy room. You know, here's the thing about BMX. You stack some trophies. <laughs> <laughs> Maddie's stacking some trophies. But the thing is, it's like you got to earn those trophies yeah. because you go to that race, you get fourth place, guess what they give you? Nothing. Nada. 
So you go there and you get first to third. Then you get, you know, you get to go home with a little reward. You're coming home a champion. And then you want to get faster and you want to get on top of the box and it's addictive. I, that's awesome. Number ones, you two. It's incredible. It's fun. Yeah, I'm, I've been. family in uh, the Northwest, I've heard. I've been racing in the intermediate class, you know. Got my 10 wins out of the novice class, but intermediate. Um, and that's kind of the sweet spot because if you get 20 more wins, you go to expert. And then I'll have like zero chance. Yeah, then you're going to be in big trouble. Those huh? are the dogs that have, haven't stopped since 1981. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're ready to do this. <laughs> Another thing I've noticed too is like one thing that's refreshing for me racing uh, motocross is I'm same, I race intermediate, same thing. Race novice, intermediate, depends on the race. But I'm not, I'm not particularly great at it. But w- when I go back to my skateboard, my snowboard, it's really nice to have this humbling thing that's like, Puts your ego in check. You know, you realize you're a beginner. You're at the beginning of a learning curve. So everything's happening kind of fast. You're, you're progressing at a very trackable rate, you could say. And then you get back on your snowboard and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm fucking good at this. Like, <laughs> this is fun. You know, that, that's a confidence ex- builder. Yeah, it's been a good confidence builder. Good to well, break down the ego, too. Well, it's been eye opening for me is just the bike skills because I have none and they're specific. And I remember one of my racers is like a guy that does the MC at the race and I, you know, the gate drops and I drop in one, one race. He's like, here comes blue. He's going a little faster than his skill set. And, uh, <laughs> you heard him say you know, that. And I heard him in mid race, but that's like a metaphor for my life. Yeah. You know, I've been going, I've been going a little faster than my skill set this whole time. So <laughs> it's been working out. That's I think I'm just going to stick with it. Usually you would not hear anything they're saying. You're like, huh? <laughs> well, we got a cool, we got a cool deal that we should talk yeah. about. Um, right behind you. Yeah. Let's talk about this albino black snowboard of death. So, yeah, I, I brought a gem with oh, me here. Um, so if you're a Capita fan, you know that the black snowboard of death was the very first snowboard that we ever made. It was actually originally the Kevin Jones black snowboard of death, but he decided to um, do Genius instead of Capita at the time, and it was too late for us to change. And so we just took his name off it and called it the black snowboard of death. Um, but it's the only line that's lasted the entire history of the company. And uh, this is the 20th anniversary Black Summer of Death from last year. And we made a white one. Um, there's only two that were pressed. One is in the company archive. So this is uh, kind of a one of one in the wild. So it's a very, very rare. And so uh, if you're a snowboard collector or a fan of Capita, um, do just like rare stuff to hang on the wall and um, collect, this would be a, a good one. People like rare stuff. Yeah, so I brought it um, because there's something dear to my heart that I'd like to raise some money for. So I'm kind of hoping that we could um, do do an auction. Um, but there's a, when we started racing BMX, there's a track um, nearby our house. It's called SeaTac BMX, and SeaTac actually has ties to snowboard history because in the '80s, you know, Craig Kelly used to race all over Washington, but used to race at this track too, and he'd battle this guy named Gary Ellis. And Craig ended up being Craig Kelly, you know, one of our, the pillars of our industry and one of the greats of all time. And Gary, the lumberjack Ellis ended up being four time world champion BMX and like one of the pillars of that industry. And it's really cool how these like teenage kids battled it out. Um, but since then, you know, this track has a serious legacy. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, grown you know, three other world champions, um, an Olympic medalist and Jill Kintner, uh, the current 2021 uh, United States Amateur National Champion, Sean Day from Tacoma, grew up right in there. Then even crossover athletes, like right now the number two in the um, um, 
downhill world tour, Kialani Hines, um, mountain bike tour, uh, grew up in Brearian racing there. So there's this legacy, this really rich legacy at this track. Um, but the track is antiquated and, um, it's not up to modern, uh, standards. And in some ways it's, it's unsafe. And I just was thinking about that, you know, and I'm just like, it just didn't align in my head because let's just say our community, um, was world renowned for world-class tennis talent. And we had multiple world champion and Olympic tennis players from our town. Don't you think we'd have some pretty good tennis courts? Absolutely. You know, but in BMX, we don't. And, you know, so I start looking into an original goal of how could we maybe align this track with its legacy. And when I start doing some research, um, you know, I see it becomes more prevalent in my eyes. You go to these affluent communities that just have incredible resources for kids. And then you go to these less affluent communities that don't have incredible resources for kids. And don't you think as a society, we should be investing in all kids, you know, not just kids lucky enough to grow up in affluent neighborhoods. And so, you know, I'm, I'm looking into what um, opportunities kids have for outdoor recreation in this area. And um, it's extremely limited. And I look into, um, you know, the reality of youth. So we live south of Seattle. It's, in, it's called South King County. Um, the school system is called Highline uh, School System, and that's where my kids go, you know. So I live in this area. And um, it's an urban school district. There's 17,000 kids that go to school there, and 60% of the kids are on free or assisted lunch. So let's think about that for a second. That's a heavy number. The biggest companies in the world are in Seattle, Washington. Amazon, Microsoft, Boeing, Starbucks. Costco, Expedia, <laughs> you know, the richest people in the world, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and literally thousands of people that have become millionaires from working in these companies. And with all of that excess of wealth, there's a school district where 60% of the families can't afford lunch. I mean, that's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. That's a harsh number. And then I learned that in South King County, there's 46 active gangs defined by the Sheriff's Department as a criminal organization of 15 or more people. And if that's not enough, 21% of the youth from the age 7 to 17 are designated as at an unhealthy weight, meaning they're either too lean by not enough food or that it's a youth obesity situation because of a lack of nutrients and a lack of fitness and recreation. So those statistics hit me hard, and these kids need help. They are lacking mentorship. They are lacking access to recreation. They're lacking basic fundamental things. And I'm not talking about a faraway land. I'm talking about the neighborhood in which I live. And so I have kind of a, a dream, you know, of, um, of being able to to use this as an opportunity to give back. Now, I understand, you know, if we're um, talking about um, climate change, we're talking about social justice issues, we're talking about other societal issues, these are complicated problems to solve. And I don't pretend to have the answers to any of it. Um, but I think if we all sit back and wait for somebody else to come with this grand solution, it never comes. 
And my thought is if each and every one of us just do something, albeit small, if we just do something instead of nothing, we can change the world. And so in addition to, you know, the responsible manufacturing, clean energy initiatives of the capita, and for me personally, as a person, what am I going to do outside to work to get back? I have a dream to resurrect this track as a certified nonprofit organization where we bring the track back to modern standards where we can host championship races, where we have community outreach, mentorship for kids, accredited coaching for kids, access to bikes and helmets for youth that, that can't, you know, um, that aren't in a financial position to do it and just create a positive, um, a positive outlet for kids in, um, you know, in South King County. So I, I realize here, this is a snowboarding podcast. I think there's probably some people, you know, like Eric that grew up racing BMX that get it and see the positives, you know, from the experience. I understand that most people listening today, you know, don't know about BMX and probably don't care. But here's the one thing I know for sure. If there is anybody on this planet that understands how being outside with your friends, having fun, catching a little air and getting rad can positively impact a young person's life, it's no worse. And that's all I'm trying to do here is just get a little bit rad and positively impact a couple of kids' lives. Beautiful. So what I'm asking is for help. You know, to do what we want to do, it's going to take a lot of time, effort, energy, a lot of money, a lot of resources. And so if we can start here today as a first step on the bomb hole, you know, I'd really appreciate it. If there's anybody listening that happens to be in a blessed financial position and would be interested in discussing a donation to a nonprofit for youth, um, feel free to DM me. I'd love to have a conversation. Um, But for um, anybody else, if you just have a little bit, you'd love to chip in. We're going to do a raffle for this albino black snowboard day. What's going to a good cause? Let's call it the white snowboard of life. The white, white snowboard okay. of life. <laughs> this is the white <laughs> snowboard of life. Yeah. Okay. And so that thing is amazing looking. So there's one in the Capitol Archives. This is the only other one exists. So I'll sign That's it. heavy. I'll sign it and uh, can be a little um, piece. Um, only white one we've ever made in 21 years. And then we'll make it really easy. Up. You can just go on bombhole.com, buy a raffle ticket. That's or 10. How- or buy 50 raffle yeah, tickets. However. And what's the name of the nonprofit so people want to, if they wanted to donate directly? Is it the name of the track is SeaTac BMX? So we'll have a link in the, if you're listening to it on the audio in the show notes or in the YouTube in the description, we'll have a link to that. And then just to make it easy, you can donate on bombhole.com by buying a few raffle tickets. And that's, that's huge. And also sidebar too. I mean, you, you articulated it perfectly. And I, I get emotional talking about these spaces because it doesn't matter if it's a BMX track or it's a skateboard park, or it's a goddamn basketball hoop. They're, they're all so important for kids, and especially kids in neighborhoods where they're lower income because chances are their home life probably has some stuff going on. If you don't like your home life and you don't like being at home, skate parks, BMX tracks, places like that are more sacred than a fucking church. Like it's, I can't even put it into words how important those spaces are. So I, I'm right there with you and I appreciate what you're doing with that blue. It's going to be awesome. Thank you. Anybody that wants to participate. Thank you very, very much. Really appreciate it. So we're going to get into a Patreon question, blue. This one is from Mike McClutch as a founder of Capita. Was it ever doomsday on the horizon? Mike. Well, thanks for the question. That's a great one. Um, 
Well, the honest answer is yes, um, many times. And, um, you know, some of it was difficult to deal with. I think, you know, as a, as a person, I was just born happy. You know, I'm a happy dude. I'm a glasses half full kind of person. And I always have been. Um, but I'm not immune to, you know, the pressures and hardships that come through life. And, you know, was it ever doomsday for Capita? Well, you know, when we started, people were like, hey, we like you guys, but there's no way this is going to work. I guarantee Capita goes out of business in two years. And the reality is we were almost out of business every other Wednesday. Um, there was tremendous financial pressure. Uh, I'll say snowboarding, that's been the easy part. The hardest part in the last 20 years with Capita has been, you know, finance-related issues. And I think for a lot of people, they maybe romanticize the idea of being like a company founder or like a CEO or something like that, you know. Um, but I can assure you it comes with a lot of pressure and accountability. And in those early years, we were an underfunded, understaffed company. And... um we got our boards made in Canada at a factory, wonderful people, but it was an underfunded, understaffed company. And one of my first lessons as an entrepreneur is your supplier's problems can and will become your problems. And so I remember, you know, there'd be days on Tuesday where the factory would call and they'd be like, Blue, we're out of money. We need, we need 70 grand by Thursday or we're going to have to close our doors and go out of business. And if we go out of business, you're going to go out of business. So, you know, okay, I need 70 grand by Thursday, but I don't have rich parents and I don't have a trust fund and I've never done this before and I don't have any collateral. How the fuck am I going to get 70 grand by Thursday? So I got myself in a position where I take small loans and borrow here and there and take out a credit card, another credit card, another credit card, you know, and I at one point had, you know, $60,000, $70,000 on my own personal credit cards at 18 to 20% interest. Um, meanwhile, showing a happy face, telling everybody, everything's good, dude, <laughs> everything, we're killing it, bro, you know? <laughs> and um, And we were killing it. We were killing it in so many ways. We were fucking crushing it, you know? The early days of Capita were just magical days, but... But it was hard, and I was under a lot of pressure. Um, and then a sequence of events happened that was kind of life-altering, um, you know, one of which, Ethan, you know, we experienced together, unfortunately. Um, and that was uh, a day in Japan, and it was a um, beautiful day, pow day, um, so much fun. It's your birthday. It was my birthday. Yeah, we had a birthday party. And um, it was like the best day ever that went to the worst day ever because um, that was the night that Jeff Anderson died. Yeah. And, um, yeah, a lot of people don't know, you know, Chris, you might not even know, but um, Ethan was the last person with Jeff before the accident, and I was the first person to Jeff after the accident. Um, and, you know, you can remember it was. It was crazy. Me and him had just come, you know that, uh, what's the movie, Step Brothers? Where they became best friends, Jeffy and I became best friends that night, and it was uh, yeah, tough, tough scenario. Yeah, my birthday party we had a 
we bought a bottle of Bombay Sapphire and we all drank it together and we all like took out a marker and signed it. And I still have the bottle, but on the top of it, it says, I am blue. I am you, Jeff Anderson. And, um, but you know, that, um, experience, you know, just so much love and appreciation for Jeff. He's just such an incredible person and, um, you know, an indefinite you know, legacy on snowboard history. Um, but that night, you know, um, I know it was dramatic for you. Yeah, definitely. A lot of PTSD. PTSD I probably still haven't even reconciled with, I imagine. So I was the first one on the scene, and um, I did my best to use the, you know, training that we've had over the years with, you know, um, first aid and responding. And so um, I tried to resuscitate him and give mouth-to-mouth CPR, and um, Romain DeMarquis was there, and Mark Frank Montoya was there in the moment, and... um, you know, I've experienced a lot of death in my life, unfortunately. You know, I started young. You know, my seventh grade, middle school, special friend, crush, probably died in a car accident um, in seventh grade. And I've had friends that, um, one friend got hit by a train, and friends have died in the rivers and in the mountains and in avalanches. And, you know, even myself, you know, I've been in avi situations and flash floods. And I've had somebody point a loaded gun at me and told me they're going to kill me three times in my life. You know, I've used up basically six of my nine lives already, but none of those experiences um, affected me the way the Jeff Anderson experience did. You know, it was the first time in my life I've ever been in a clinical state of, of shock. First time in my life, the first event in my life that's ever given me, you know, PTSD. Um, and at the time, I didn't talk to anybody about it. Now, I can say that I didn't have anybody to talk about it, but truth is I've been blessed with some pretty good friends in my life, great friends. And so I just didn't find an outlet to talk about the pressure that I was under with Capita, having my heart and set on something so dedicated and just redlining on a daily basis. And then coming home from the Jeff Anderson um, experience in Japan. And then these dominoes started to fall. First thing that happened, my dad had a stroke and couldn't uh, talk. And um, that hit me really, really hard for how close that we were. And then after that, Bubba the Bulldog died. He died a, that was tough. He died a heart disease at five years old. And Bubba was my kid before I had real kids. I mean, I fucking loved that dog. I was devastated when that happened. You know, and on top of that, I uh, I allowed myself to be in an unhealthy, toxic, romantic relationship, and that just did not help the scenario. And so I think, you know, I'm a very resilient person, and any one of those things individually I could have handled, but the weight of all of them collectively, I just, I couldn't bear, you know? And, you know, I cracked and you never know when you're going to crack. And for me, I was just walking down the street one day, walking down the street. And I don't know why they picked me, but some dudes got aggressive and started, you know, messing with me and I didn't know them. And it was totally random. And without even skipping a beat, I marched right over there and just started fucking throwing haymakers. You know, and um, an altercation ensued and it wasn't good. And um, especially for me, I was, uh, it was on private property and a police officer happened to see the whole thing. So I went to jail and um, man, that was a, that's just not a good experience. Were you you drinking? Um, Yeah, I was drinking. Yeah. Before then. And that certainly didn't help. Because I've never really known you to be a fighter. I'm not, you know, I'm a happy person. I'm not a violent person. I'm not a reactive person. I'm a very happy person. And that's when you do something out of character, um, 
when you don't get the help that you need or you don't vent, you know, or you, you don't get a, a release that you need, then sometimes that it's going to emerge anyway. And it emerges in very unhealthy ways. You know, so I remember being in jail for what seemed like forever. I mean, minutes in that place feels like hours, days. And they finally call my name. And I'm just like, thank you. I'm getting out. And uh, they called my name. They gave me the jumpsuit and sent me upstairs to Ninth Florida general population. And uh, I just can't even explain that experience. I mean, walking into a room full of gnarly dudes and none of them want to be your friend. And it's a very manipulative environment, a very intense environment, and um, not one that I would wish on my worst enemy. I had a horrible experience in there. Was this in Seattle? Yeah, it was in Seattle. And yeah. How long we talked? Downtown King King County Jail, you know. Um, so it was two days, which felt like a long ass time. Yeah. You know, so finally I get out of there, you know, and I'm thinking that that's my rock bottom in life. And you know, when you get up there, it's one thing when, you know, it's like you feel sorry for yourself or you have like this woe is me moment. But when I was up there, it was something different. It was like a deep disappointment when your own actions don't align with your ideals. You know, when your own actions don't align with who you see yourself as, as a human being. And that's where I was. I was just extremely, extremely disappointed in, in myself, you know? Um, yeah. And so that was almost rock bottom. And then two weeks later, I fell head first through a 10 foot plate glass window and almost died. Yeah. It wasn't a safety glass that shattered. It was like I fell in plates on my back and my arm. And I'm really lucky that it didn't fall on my head or my neck or something else. So I'm in the emergency room and I got staples and stitches all over. And it was that moment where I had a moment of clarity. And you see, I believe deeply in the law of attraction and the power of positivity and negativity. And I believe in cosmic vibration manipulation and quantum physics and I believe that we can create our own reality by the words that we use in our own head. And it was at that moment in the emergency room where I'm like, this is not who I am and this is not the life that I'm going to live. So you keep in mind, this is, I was 29 years old. I'm 47 now. So this is a long time ago. But I said right then and there, my birthday was coming up on my, it was like, a, I was kind of in this cloud for a year. And I said, you know, on my 30th birthday, when I wake up, I'm going to change my life and I'm going to fill my life full of positivity and positive energy. And that doesn't mean like breathing positivity in and exhaling negativity. That's not how you do it. Cause there is no negativity. You breathe in positivity, exhale positivity. It's a cycle where everything's positive. Those toxic relationships in your life, they got to go. And that was a hard thing for me because I was always taught in my roots that you got to stick by your friends and you got to be there for your friends. But a life lesson is, being there to support your friends, to be a sounding board, to be a good listener, does not mean that you allow your friends' problems to become your problems. Their burden is not your burden. And it took me a long time to understand that, to let some of those relationships go. But the interesting thing is when I let those toxic relationships go and I really embraced positivity in my life, um, there's a book called the, the you know Magic of Believing that is a game changer. Anybody, could, I recommend you go find it. But it's you have positivity in your life and you really, really believe with all of your soul and what you're doing. And things started to change. And it's remarkable 
how my life changed almost on the spot. Things started to flow in a positive direction and things got better. And when they got better, they got better and they got better. And, you know, I look back and I think like, you know, people say there's like a, oh, you know, like a black cloud or a sky under a black cloud. I really think the black cloud is like, it's a real thing. And what it is, is when someone gets caught in a negative cycle, then more negative things happen. And when people are caught in a positive cycle, more positive things happen. And so you got to get yourself in a positive cycle. And so, um, you know, a main takeaway from my experience that I would like to share with others is, you know, I really do believe that you can create your own reality with the words you use in your own head. So choose wisely. Interesting about being the positive person. I think sometimes those negative people really lay into the positive people and get close to you and all that. And so it's interesting you're able to shed that negativity in your life. And uh, it's good that you did. And I, I see a lot of people with those dark clouds. And it's tough, man. They they chase them around. So hopefully people listen to you and shed that cloud, be positive, make that difference. Well, I think um, it requires some self-awareness you have to realize that that's what's happening to you because a lot of people don't realize they're just like looking around why is all this bad stuff happening to me i can't catch a break how many times have you heard that somebody well, like yeah, I, they blame everybody else blame everybody else. must be nice yeah you know, okay. look at that guy he's got everything another another sidebar i got got to notice and highlight and what you're talking about is the beauty of hitting rock bottom too because that's something you know i'm in sobriety and we've fucking talk about that stuff all the time in that little part of my life and and you know getting being miserable enough to make a change is huge like it sometimes you got to keep going down until you get miserable enough to make a fucking change and then when you hit that rock bottom that can be the best thing that ever happened to you because you're like okay I'm fucking sick of this shit I'm sick of it and um you know that's a that's a story about amongst a lot of addicts, you know, you see that a lot and, and alcoholics and stuff. And it's really uh, powerful. And, and I was curious as a sidebar too, you know, I like actionable advice. So when you're talking about, you know, positive positivity, do you have any way to provide like context of like things you might say to yourself, positive versus negative or a way to kind of actualize that? I mean, the basics, I think there's words of affirmation, I believe work, I believe being plugged into, um, you know, nature or just recognizing, uh, you know, and I don't want to go down like a religious conversation here, but however you define it, understanding that there's something bigger than yourself and um, connecting with that. So how do you connect with that? And I think at that point in my life too, I was spending a lot of my time in the city more than I ever have in my life. I was unplugged from nature at that time in my life. I was unconnected from what makes me feel um, you know, whole. Um, and so I think that, um, that that's, that's a couple of things. And, and also, you know, I, I don't know what word you want to use. Um, prayer is the easiest one, but call it meditation, call it a re- release of cognitive thought. But every single night of my life, I sit there and give thanks and say thanks to the benefit, to, to the blessings in my life. You know, I say thankful, for, thank you for, my childhood and thank you for my family and thank you for my home and thank you for this blessing of snowboarding in my life. And I go down the list and I say my prayers until I fall asleep every single night, you know? So I know some people listening might really identify with that word prayer and some people, it might really throw them off. Um, so don't get hung up on the word. Don't get hung up on the word. Just get, understand the action 
you know, of, of having gratitude in your heart and having a cognitive release of emotion to show gratitude and say thank you for what you have. That goes a long way for channeling positivity in your life. It's like identifying what you have and what's good and really hold on to it. It's part of the process of, of releasing positivity into the universe and then getting positivity back. The base, the most basic way to do that is to say thank you. Mm -hmm. Also sidebar too, when you're grateful and you're thankful and all those things, you're already, you're living in abundance already. So you don't need anything else. And that's kind of powerful too. Instead of living in lack, living in need, I wish I had this, I wish I had that. I'm thankful for this. It's, it's fascinating. I, I love, love that type of stuff. I have a little book called the five minute journal. I gave one to buds as well, but you write down uh, everything you're thankful for before you go to bed amongst a couple other things, what went good with the day uh, and what you could have done better, a little introspection but it really helps. Can It can help flip it. If you're looking for some actionable advice, not to hijack that conversation too much. You know, one takeaway I have from, you know, sharing that, that story is that, um, you know, I think we, we all have a track record, right? And, um, you know, we're going to be held accountable for our actions, but I think it's important as individuals that we reserve the right to evolve, you know, and um, we reserve the right to do better in, you know, it's like, I'll raise my hand. It's like, I fucked up, made some bad decisions, but you know, I'm not going to let that define me. And, um, you know, I think professionally or personally, we're not going to be judged by our problems. We're going to be judged by how we deal with those problems. And every morning that I wake up, um, you know, I am who I say I am and I'm not who you say I am and I'm not who you think that I might be. And so I would just encourage other people to be able to wipe the slate clean. You know, if you made a mistake yesterday, don't let that linger into today. Wake up this morning and decide from the minute that you wake up who you're going to be today. And um, that's what I try to do. And each day that I wake up, I try to be better. And um, I, I, I try to be the best that I can be. It's beautiful. Well said. Well said. Well, we're moving right along here, Blue. And... Um, you know, I know talking to a lot of people that are interested in the in the Capita story. So I got a great question from uh, none other than friend of the show, Dan Breezy. Here we go. Bluemont, hey, it's Breezy. Uh, question for you in regards to the early days of Capita, say the first three to five years or even maybe 10 years. Did you guys have any major setbacks or detrimental errors that you made uh, that almost wiped the company out? Did you guys ever almost lose the company in that first decade? And if so, what were they? And then if you had to put a point on it or a few points on it, what was it that made Capita survive? Out of all the snowboarding brands that are started year after year, so many come and go. What was it, do you think, that actually made Capita survive? Thanks, dude. Can't wait to hear your episode. Talk soon. Love hearing his voice, huh? Yeah, Breezy. I love Dan Breezy. Man, what a great dude. Um, thank you, Dan. Appreciate the question. So... Um, by the way, Dan Breezy, he's one of the gnarliest motherfuckers to ever strap on a snowboard. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I don't know how you want to define who the best was or this and that. There's all these categories, but if you want to go into the most gnarly, he's one of the most gnarly ever. Oh yeah. Um. So, question: Early days. You know, I think I touched on it a little bit. The finance in the early days was definitely tricky. Um, one of the experiences that almost sank the company. Um, in 2007, 
we had um, our most popular snowboard, which was called the Stairmaster. And a raw material supplier changed the chemical composition of the top sheet, didn't tell us. We made all our boards, and the top sheet fell off of every single snowboard. I remember this. <laughs> and it was harsh because that was like 75% of our sales. I mean, we were heavy Stairmaster company back then. And we would have been done. I mean, it just would have like sank the ship. And so how did we get over it? Well, we weren't the only company that it happened to. And some of the other companies tried to sweep it under the rug, tried to pretend like it didn't happen. And um, our approach at the time was 100% accountability, 100% ownership, 100% um, honesty. And so we just told every single retailer, told every single distributor, this is the situation. This is exactly what's going to happen. And um, we did our first and only in 21 years global recall of a product. And it was uh, heavy on customer service, heavy on uh, shipping bills. Um, but I think our retail base really appreciated the honesty. And, um, and that's just one of the the uh, pillars of, of the company is just, um, you know, being truthful with how we, being truthful and transparent with how we operate. Only one in that many years? That's I was the only one. Yeah. yeah. Great. I mean, we've had like little things here and there, but in terms of like yeah. a widespread issue and a recall, that's the only one. And it's all about how you handled it with the retailers that kept yeah. them around and kept them stoked. That's beautiful. Yeah. So what was the last part of this question? Uh, I think that was pretty much it. The oh yeah, just unforeseen obstacles, and then oh, what what separates you from the brands? I mean, you just pretty much answered it. Right? Oh yeah, well, I think what separates us from the other brand. This one is uh, it's kind of more difficult to put your finger on, but I would say, um, I would say, it's our group of people, and um, how people have really bought into the company on multiple levels, and this is on a distributor level. I mean, they're not legally our partners but they act in 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 a way that that looks like a partnership and how the team riders are emotionally invested into the company and the reps are emotionally invested in the company and retailers and shop kids love the company there's this personal investment into the company that's really um had us stand out from others and specifically it's i think our partnership and ownership group so in 2003 we um, kind of formed a new partnership that reorganized Capita and um, we already had Cole and we founded C3, which is our distribution company for the United States and Canada. And in 2004, we uh, founded the Union Binding Company. And this group of people, you know, I'll be honest and transparent right here. Um, you know, it's an imperfect group and we have imperfect relationships. But the truth is this, more intelligent people than us, more educated people than us, um, better financed people than us, more experienced people than us have tried and failed many, many times in a row. And we have continued to build assets and build something that is, um, you know, dare I say, from my opinion, important to snowboarding. And so... Um, it's really a scenario where, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And there's a certain magic of our partnership group 
um, albeit sometimes dysfunctional, sometimes functional. Either way, there's a magic there. And um, and so I really appreciate the group, and, and I think the group effort um, is the reason for success. It's not any one person that's done it. It's the group that's done it. Wow. Very, very well said. It's obvious something's working over there. Now, to to kind of, we kind of jump forward to that question, but I would be personally interested in, in the, the Capita origin story. Oh, so yeah, how Capita got started. Well, um, so I was a pro snowboarder, and uh, I was actually at a party in Bubba's Bar, and I overheard uh, Travis Parker uh, talking about how K2 needed a new team manager. And uh, I had just gotten fired, you know, from my pro snowboard gig. And I was over it anyway. I mean, you know, my whole goals with pro snowboarding, it was about chasing an experience. You know, I never took, I never considered myself a professional athlete. You know, I never really worked on the athletic craft. I was just in it to fly around the world and create memories, you know. And I knew it wasn't going to last forever. And so when I heard Travis talking about, um, excuse me, how K2 need a new team manager, I was like, I can do that. And Haley Martin, who was the uh, uh, marketing director at the time, happened to be in Salt Lake City for a trade show. And I knocked the door down to get an interview, you know. And so I got an interview. And, um, and um, yeah, some people might not like this, but this is true. Um, in the interview, she asked me, if we hire you, what would you do? And I told her in the interview that I'd fire your whole team and start over. And now, did I fire the whole team and start over? No. But we did make some changes, significant ones. And I think sometimes that's what like a company needs. They need an outside voice. They need somebody that's not emotionally tied to make some decisions that that, need, that are obvious to every other person except for the people in the building, you know? Um, Say, so, you know, and they gave me the job. So, you know what that says is that they also, you know, knew that, that there needed to be a transition. So I, I moved to Seattle, fell in love with the Northwest. I actually had an incredible time at, um, at K2 and got to recreate that team, you know, hired Bobby Meeks, hired Vile Ile Luoma, and, you know, Louis Fountain, and gave Travis Parker his first pro model. and The Busca graphics iconic. Yeah, you know, and, you know, that time Vile leaving the Forum 8, that was like a big deal. He was the first for, dude from, to leave the Forum 8, you know. So we had a little, a little you know, moment there. It was fun. And, you know, Luke Edgar... Um, who worked at K2 at the time, works at Chaker Girls now, is just such an awesome dude. And Haley was, that whole crew back then was, it was a good crew, you know? And that's why the people have gone on to do, to do good things, you know? Um, but, um, so, you know, I was really good friends with Jason Brown and we um, played in bands together. And, um, and there was this whole like snowboard and rock scene going on back in Salt Lake at the time. Like I was in bands with Jason, I was in bands with Mike LeBlanc and Whitey and, um, you know, it's like what I love what Rav and Kokar are doing now, um, making music and generating content, going snowboarding. Because you know, 25 years ago, that's like what we were doing. You know, um, so anyway, Jason and I were good friends and played, and um, we were at this event, and uh, it was one of those indoor snowboard events. And uh, Travis Barker, Kevin Jones, Jason Brown, and I put our hands in the middle, and we said, <clears throat> "Tomorrow." we're all going to quit our jobs and start this nowhere company called Capita. Okay. So I was pretty fired up. And the next day I walk into Brent Turner's office as the VP at uh, K2. And I handed him my letter of resignation and he's just like, 
what do you mean you're quitting? You just got here. And I worked at K2 for like six months. I wasn't there long, you know? And uh, I looked at him square, just squared him up and said, uh, you know, I'm going to quit. I'm going to start the greatest snowboarding company in the world. And if you're smart, you'll back it. And then I slid him another document and asked him for five million bucks. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, the audacity of a young kid that doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. That was my scenario. But I said that shit with a straight face. And bless his heart, Brant was such a nice guy. He didn't laugh. I can't believe he didn't (laughs) laugh, you know? He actually gave me some really nice advice. He said, listen, he's like, I... You've done great things here. He's like, I really believe you have potential that you can do this. But I think you have a lot to learn about the business side of snowboarding. And you would probably benefit by staying here for a few more years and then try to do this. You know, and he's right. The truth is we had no idea what we were doing. No idea when we're getting started. But, you know, that's part of being like young and hungry and driven. At that point, like we were doing it. Nobody's going to tell us we're not going to do it. So that, you know, Brent gave me that parental advice that went right in one ear and right out the other ear, you know, because I quit on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't take the advice. (laughs) Didn't get five million. (laughs) No, we did not. Uh, So then after that, you know, kind of Travis, you could tell had a heavy heart and wanted to do it, but he decided to stay at K2. And I understood because at K2, I was the one that wrote his contract, and it was a good one. Right. <laughs> you know, it was a good one. Back then, Travis Parker was making some money in a pro model and all this stuff. And so when Travis decided that he didn't do it or wasn't going to do it, I was like, that's a bummer, you know, but I kind of understand. And then KJ kind of went like AWOL. And then um, Steve Asifin, his agent at the time, basically said, you know, like KJ has another opportunity, and he's going to do genius the genius brand instead. And so Jason and I were like, all right, you know, that's cool. You guys don't want to do it, but you should have fucking told me yesterday because I already quit my job. (laughs) So we just had the attitude that, you know, okay, we're doing it anyway. And so we kind of uh, reorganized our thoughts and we had this like grand vision out of the gates, like how you know big it was going to be. And at those at the time, like people might not realize now, but in 1999, Kevin Jones, Jason Brown, Travis Parker has some like elite, elite level stuff, you know. Um. So yeah, we just um kind of circled back and made it like a garage thing, and we founded the company out of a bedroom in my house in West Seattle. Ran it out of there um, for. The first, you know, couple of years, two, three years, Jason had uh, uh, lived in Vancouver and had like, a, you know, kind of the creative team up there. Um, I lived in Seattle and just paying my friends and pizza and beer and favors, you know, trying to get this thing off the ground. I didn't have any furniture. The living room was our warehouse. Um, and that's, you know, in the early days, that's when something really, really big happened. But we met um, Ephraim, who is our creative director. And he designed our very first snowboard graphic. He designed the the uh, Merchant of Death skull. That was the first thing he ever did. Because <clears throat> he was an art student at the time. And um, we told him we're starting a snowboard company. We need a graphic tomorrow. You know? And so he pulled it together. And over the last 21 years, he um, has done, like, you know, the, the board, the artistic curation and the graphics and the trade booths and the catalogs and, you know, the look and the feel, the brand and, 
Um, he's just so much more than what he does, but he's an incredible person and, um, he's just part of the fabric of the brand. And, um, we've been doing this together for over 20 years now, you know? So I just have so much appreciation for F if we can do a, an air horn. He might Biggles. need a super one, you know, <laughs> it's the super. Yeah. 20 years of partnerships with the super. Yeah, totally. So, you know, the early days were just ra- raw, you know, and it was cool. And, uh, Luke McMaster is our first team rider and TJ Schneider and Corey and, and Lapore were in early. Lepore. Yeah. Lapore was awesome. He is awesome. He was so great. Corey Smith came in early and Ryan Thompson, but just had such a great, a great crew of, crew of people. Seth Hewitt. Yeah. Hewitt. Yep. Um, so then, yeah, in 2003, that's when um, kind of things changed and um, Jason left and then the new, um, you know, partnership group founded. And then um, after that, it's kind of been 2003 to 2021 is kind of that next era with, uh, you know, the current um, partners and group of people. Maybe uh, 2003 till infinity. Yeah, who knows? I mean, you know, what's crazy about it is I feel like we're just getting started. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. You know, we're 21 years in and it really feels like the sky's the limit. And, um, you know, we've, uh, we've changed a lot, you know, over, over time. Um, you know, I feel like I remember having a conversation early on how, you know, people are just dying to like figure you out. They want to define you, you know, they want to like, Say you're this thing, you know, Chris Granny or Granny, you're this thing. Put you in a box. Stony Buds, East Stone, Fortier, you're this. You put you on the box and you put you on the shelf. And when they can define you, then, you know, you're no longer interesting. And it's this like consumer mentality where people just like consume and devour things and people, something to be one of those things. And, you know, with Capita, it's very difficult to consume and discard Capita because Capita is not any one thing. You know, Capita is continually in motion and it's always morphing and it's always evolving and it has over time. And that's actually what the our logo, the metaphor logo is. It's the circle with the pie-shaped pieces emanating from the central core. You know, the centerpiece represents snowboarding or specifically in this case, Capita, what brings us together. And then the pie-shaped pieces are the passions in your life. And it's supposed the logo itself is supposed to be unique for each individual and it's supposed to change and morph over time. And that is a representation of that conversation, how Capita will never, I guess, be, um, you know, uncool because it will never be defined. It will never be figured out. You'll never be able to put it on a box and put it on the shelf and move on to the next thing. So I have a question as you're talking, uh, you know, you guys always had the, there's been kind of a mantra on the board. I don't know if you called that, but it would say we devour everything. Yeah. Does that pertain to any of that stuff? Um, Yeah, kind of. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just, we have like a lot of taglines and mantras over the year. We kind of have new ones every year, but yeah, it's a, it's a flip on that. It's like, we don't want people to devour us, but we're going to devour everything else. Mm-hmm. Love that. Now I, I would love to revisit the Patreon question we asked earlier about, uh, the t- a team writer, the question that you had, Buds, you want to cue that one up? So we had another Patreon question for you, Blue. And this one is from Joseph McCarty. And he says, which Capita writer has done the most to help build the brand, both past and present? 
Thanks for the question, Joseph. That's a great one. And it's impossible to answer um, because we've had um, over the course of capital history, you know, our team riders represent more than their athletic achievement. And I think at a lot of companies, that's all they're expected to do is just snowboard. And at Capita, you know, you go back to the early days when I talk about Lepore and Corey and TJ, you know, those guys were artists and they, um, not only were they, you know, a, a part of conceptualizing the artistic direction of the brand, but they actually did the art and did the snowboard graphics and uh, created the look and feel of where we're going to go. And um, so you have this very art rich origin with the team. And then you have this kind of middle era of, of snowboard when we have, you know, like Craven and Breezy and Jonas Carlson emerging as just phenomenal snowboarders at the time, you know? And then um, from there, the modern era, you know, we, we have, you know, the best snowboarders in the world. You know, maybe not like every best snowboarder in the world, but I think it would be hard pressed to make an argument that Arthur Longo and Kazuhiro Kokobo and Scott Stevens and Jess Kamir aren't some of the best snowboarders in the world, you know? And um, so I think it's impossible to pick one because they've all been contributors. Um, but if I had to talk about a couple that stand out, you know, I think with Scott Stevens, it's really interesting because there are some pro snowboarders that do things that the consumer could never ever do and they could never even try to do. You know, it's like the helicopter filling the helicopter, filling the helicopter, dropping in a line like no consumer ever in their lifetime is going to get to do that. Okay, with Scott Stevens, they can't do what Scott does either, but they can try. They can go in the backyard and try. And I think that accessibility combined with his very unique athletic ability um, has what's catapulted you know, him into being like a, one of the real superstars of our sport, you know? Um, and another one obviously is, is Jess, you know, a lot of companies have this kind of gal to check the box on the team, or maybe they hope that the, the girl sells, you know, the women's, you know, women's products. Um, but one thing that, that sets Jess Kamir apart is that she, at Capita, she doesn't just sell our women's products. She sells all products. And, I think women are inspired by her and what she does. And I think um, men really love her approach to snowboarding and everybody feels the emotion in which she um, brings to her snowboarding. And she just markets the brand. She doesn't market women's snowboarding. And I think that's something that makes her involvement um, really powerful. You guys have built a pretty incredible team over the years and it continues to grow and you guys keep fostering some young talent and, it's really cool to see, you know, see people like Scott who've been with you guys for so long and cares so much about, you know, the the brand still. You know, you see the guy, he's got a Capita sticker on his phone charger or something, and he's, you know, he's got a kit, and he's like, you know, still still so proud. And it seems like from the outside looking in, you guys have created a really a really strong sense of family. And, and everybody, whether it's a person that's bought a board from a store or a retailer or a rep or a rider, there's this, this kind of wanting to be a part that seems really strong with you guys. Yeah. I think it's part of um, the way I look at business and it's the more transactional this is, the less it means. And Capita is not transactional. It's not a, 
exchange of I give you this, you give me this. It's it's deeper than that. It's more emotional than that. And people have more of a, a connectivity to um, the people in Capita and the products of Capita and what we're doing. They feel a part of something. And so that's something that um, that we acknowledge and, and I think um, that's part of being on our team. You know, let's be honest. There's a lot of really good professional level snowboarders out there. They don't really care if they ride for this company or that company. It's like whatever, either one will work. You know, what's the better deal? And at, at Capita, those those aren't the people that we want. We want the people that want to ride for Capita and nothing else will do. Because those are the people that get it, and those are the people that are the ambassadors. You look at Kevin Backstrom. You know, Kevin Backstrom rode Capita boards for free for three years before he's on our pro team. It's so sick. Yeah, and it's like, Kevin, thank you. You know, and talk about that dude. I mean, he does everything right. You should see him at, like, internal events, just communicating with everybody and so personal and such a rip thing. I mean, he's just fucking awesome, but he wanted to be on Capita and nothing else would work. And that's something that happened early on. I remember when Morrow Snowboards went under and Tyler Lepore, Tyler was huge back then. And Lepore calls me up and he's just like, I don't care what you got, what you can pay. It doesn't matter. I want to be on the Capita team. I'm not riding for anybody else. Just send me a fucking board. That's it. And those are the people that can share your message and they live it, they breathe it, they love it, and they help build the brand, you know? So I always see with the younger kids that is always awesome. These kids, the ones that just are emerging and they're starting to blow up, um, they, they ride for Capita and they – get their offers from these other companies and they're just like nah they don't even want to entertain them yeah because they're just so hyped to be a part of capita i saw it with rav you know i've seen it with a ton of kids they're just not down to leave they're just like even if they're not getting paid you know these are the ams the next wave of kids yeah that's a beautiful thing it is a beautiful thing and it's honestly part of the process for us to find the right people because for you know someone like rav that i that gets it and understands and wants to stay for sure in the history of the company we've had people that just wanted the money and they've left and that's fine you know um you know i don't want to make it sound like we don't pay our team riders we do pay our team riders but in history it's like we probably you know weren't the highest bidder you know maybe they could have got more somewhere else and the people that go take it, that's fine because, like, they probably weren't living it and breathing it and loving it the way some of the other people do anyway, you know. So, awesome. And also another thing that's important with the, the snowboard industry as a whole, you want a snow, you want the snowboard industry. It's like fucking take, con, take control back of our snowboard industry. That's important, right? You know, whether you're riding for a fucking ski company or a – Whatever, you, you know, those, the, at the end of the day, that money is going back to a gigantic conglomerate and taking, <clears throat> taking money from big companies is great. It helps pay the bills. It's fucking awesome for a rider. But like at the end of the day, you know, as the snowboard brands goes is how snowboarding goes, you know, so who can, who controls the brands? It should be controlled by fucking snowboarders, you know, and that's important. And, and that's, what's important on this show. We want to hammer that home too. It's important to support snowboarders. Yeah. Right? I mean, I identify with that. I think it's important. I realize that it's not important to everybody. Some people just want good products and they don't really care. Um, but, you know, I'd like to know that Capito is founded by snowboarders. We're operated and run by snowboarders. We're still 21 years deep, independently owned. You know, my 
life, my house still on the line, you know, partners are too, <laughs> you know? And I think the thing is that's cool about our partner group is that we all have an employee role in addition to our ownership role. And so, you know, we're not going anywhere. And, and this is a lesson I learned, you know, back in my pro rider days is you got to ride for companies where there's somebody in a decision-making position that has your back. And oftentimes in these big companies, they hire smart kids that come through the pipeline quick, you know? So I remember back in the day, I rode for Oakley, Scott Farnsworth, ex-world pro surfer was the team manager. Scott Farnsworth loved me, you know, I was on the team. I was like on Oakley feeling the love. And then Farney gets promoted. Somebody else gets the job. Guess what? He has his own dudes. I'm not one of his dudes. I went from hero to zero at Oakley like that, <laughs> you know? And it can, it can happen. It happens all the time. And so, you know, at Capita, we've seen people leave, you know? Hewitt left. Jonas Carlson left. Kevin Jones left. Sage Katzenberg left. But did those guys find longevity where they went? They did not. Not a single one of them found longevity where they went. Did they have more short-term opportunity? Maybe, probably, sure. Did they leave for a reason? Sure. But over time, did they have the consistency, the longevity? Probably because the companies they went to, people were changing. Well, guess who's still here at Capita? I'm still here. I'm still sitting in the chair. I'm not going anywhere. You know, so the kids that ride for Capita, there's a different level of maybe confidence or peace of mind or consistency um, because, um, you know, we don't have to report to some ski company. We don't have to report to some corporate venture capitalist firm. We report to each other. This is our company. It's our deal. Um, and for that, you know, I, I you know, I, I believe that skateboarders and snowboarders should be running the skateboard and snowboard industry. And there's plenty of smart, talented people that are capable to do it. And so why would we hand those keys to somebody else? Well said. Snowboarders should support snowboarders. Mm-hmm. Fucking well said. So next, uh, next docket on the Capita storyline, man. We got we got to get into the factory. Mm. It's incredible. I don't know the if every, everybody knows what you guys are doing over at the mothership. You should explain how that came about and and where you guys are at with that. Yeah. So part of the evolution of the Capita brand, you know, in the early days, we were a design and marketing based company. Essentially, we designed the products and went to another factory and um, had them made. And that's the blueprint for most snowboard companies. So every snowboard company is going to tell you how they make the greatest stuff. But in truth, very few snowboard companies actually make anything at all, you know. And so we were at a position in 2011 where we felt like, wow, you know, we've made it a decade and we're growing and we're doing great, you know, um, and we're appreciative of that, but we're also self-aware and it's like, okay, well, how do we make it a next 10 years? How do we make it the next 10 years? And as a partner group, we identified that controlling our own production was the way to, you know, ensure our future. And so in 2011, we bought, which is what at the time was uh, one of the biggest snowboarding factories in the world, the Elan factory um, in Austria. And, uh, and then over time we ended up closing that factory down and we built, um, the mothership, which opened in 2015. And that is the world's first, uh, 100% clean energy snowboard production facility. Um, so yeah, we're just really proud of that. You know, um, I remember having this meeting with the partnership group and we were talking about the future and, you know, we could have 
stayed in the old factory just fine and could have kept, you know, burning oil and having a significant carbon footprint. But when we talk about the future, um, you know, in the future, you're not going to be able to have smokestacks outside your factory. You know, everybody's going to have to have um, more responsible and sustainable initiatives. So the question is not if, you know, you're going to do it, but, you know, when that you're going to do it and do you want to invest now? And I was really, really proud of our group because it was a unanimous decision. Like, let's do this the right way. Let's invest in our future. Let's invest and try to do our part to um, produce responsibly. And um, I think that's that was one of those um, kind of breakout moments for the company, you know, um, because I believe in the inherent good in people. I believe that people want to do the right thing. And I even believe as an extension of that, companies want to do the right thing. The question is, do people or companies want to do the right thing bad enough that they're willing to make significant sacrifices to do it? Are they willing to put their money on the table, defer profits or make investments or even have expenses? You know, and the difference between an investment and expense is investment you make uh, with a thought that someday you're going to get a return. And an expense is something you do because you spend money on something because it's the right thing to do or it's something that you want to do. And there's not always a return. And um, with the mothership, I mean, one, it was an incredible um, engineering undertaking. You know, a lot of companies that claim 100% hydropower, they buy hydro credits from a grid. We have our own hydropower station on site. We're one of few uh, privately held companies that have tapped into a public waterway in the country of Austria. And we pump water through um, the factory and um, only the thermal energy or the temperature is utilized uh, to activate the uh, NH3 system that heats and cools the building and the presses. So the water isn't actually touched. It goes back clean into the river. Um, and we have, you know, solar panels on the roof for the base electricity draw for LED natural lighting. And, um, it's extensive, you know, water-based stinks and healthy environment, even in our wood core milling zone. Um, we have a five axis machine that um, mills the wood cores, but all the excess sawdust we compress into pucks and give them to local farmers to heat their, either houses and stuff. So, um, it's really, really, really cool. Um, and I'm really proud of it. You're pretty hands-on at the factory too, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it depends o- over the years, but we have an incredible um, team of managers um, um, and executives that run the factory operations. Um, so I live in Seattle, of course, and pre-COVID, I was in Austria about 10 days every other month. But after COVID, I haven't been traveling there as much. And so I don't manage the factory floor or run the people there, you know. Um, and so we have an awesome group of people that, that ran, ran that, you know, I want to highlight something you said earlier, earlier, you know, talking about complex issues that are very, very difficult to solve and it's overwhelming. Or I can't remember the verbiage you used exactly, but it falls in line of exactly what you just said, you said earlier in the episode, which is if everybody can just do do good for the lack of a better term in their little bubble. They can, if they can make a small impact in their like their little bubble, they'll change the world. And that's like exactly what you guys are doing with Capita in, on, on your ability and your scale of what you're able to do. You guys are making a good impact and that's fucking awesome. Let's give you a goddamn air horn for that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree that we, sh- you know, 
first of all, like, let's be honest, we're still manufacturing things and manufacturing things at its core isn't um, environmentally friendly, you know? Um, and I think it, it goes back to being honest and truthful about what your goals are. Um, if the goal was to, you know, if the number one goal was to save the planet, honestly, we probably wouldn't manufacture anything at all. So we have to be honest with the reality that our number one goal is to make the best snowboards in the world. That's the number one goal. Now, secondarily from that goal, what decisions can we make that are responsible decisions that um, can benefit the people around us and the environment and um, in you know the area in which uh, the manufacturing operates. And that's kind of how, you know, I live my life and with the company, it's about, um, you know, just being honest about like what we're trying to do. Okay. I want to make the best damn somewhere in the world. Okay. Now after that, how do we do that responsibly? How do we do that with the best, um, you know, intentions and best initiatives and, and things like that. So I've come to understand a lot of companies are kind of, for lack of a better term, full of shit with selling their uh, green energy story or greenwashing, I believe it's called. Uh, how does how does that compare to what you guys do at, at Capita? Um, well, that's a difficult wormhole to, to go down um, because there's so many layers to it. But um, I believe in, um, uh, you know, our actions speaking for themselves. And so if you look at what most people um, know Capita for, uh, I think they know us for, you know, world-class athletes and progressive products and art and graphics. That's what a lot of people know us for. Um, there are other brands that present themselves. Their entire marketing presentation of the company is about them being green. That's it. That's the foundation of their company to varying levels of truth. And when we, you know, opened the mothership in 2015, we invested more than anybody in the history of the snowboarding industry on responsible manufacturing and clean energy. Now, in 2015, did you see the look and feel of the brand change? Did not change. We didn't overnight become this like, hey, look at us. Yeah, you know, we're, green. we're a green company. You know, we are who we are. And I think that, I hope anyway, you know, at some point there's going to be a realization by the customer base where they look at these other companies that market themselves as being green and they're like, wait, you know, these guys I think are green are like, you know, maybe are, but maybe aren't. But then these crazy freaking capita dudes have like invested millions and millions and millions of dollars into clean energy production. There's no green police. You know, I think that, that, um, that there's, um, there's kind of a a moment there, um, that, that, um, is kind of a powerful moment, Mm -hmm. you know? Okay. Earlier we were talking about your professional career. You've obviously worked with a ton of professional athletes with capita. Can you just speak on the hard work required to become a professional athlete? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it takes a lot to um, make it to the top tier of professional athletics, regardless of what your sport is. And at snowboarding, it takes a lot to get there, too. Um, you know, I've it's been really fun over my life to um, be around a lot of amazing athletes. And 
um, I don't know if you know this, but my wife works in mainstream sports and, you know, she has done everything from the Olympics to the X games, crank works, um, in action sports, but also works in mainstream sports. So she used to work for the Los Angeles galaxy. She's worked for major league soccer, worked for the Seattle Sounders. And currently she works with, um, the Seattle Seahawks. And, um, as such, we've become friends and had relationships with high level athletes, you know, Super Bowl champions and, you know, national team soccer members and Olympians, Olympic gold medalists. And, you know, just sitting back, I've made an observation. And when you talk about the top tier of professional athletes, my observation is hard work is what they do when they get there, but it's not what got them there. And when you look at youth sports, I hear it over and over again from parents telling their little kids, just work hard, just work hard. You work hard, you can get there. Work hard, work hard, work hard. And I think that's a mistake. You know, works for jerks, man. Kids don't want to work, <laughs> you know. And I think the parents that push their kids to work are the kids that either, you know, flame out, burn out, or they're the kids, if they have uh, an amazing athletic ability, they make it with a certain amount of resentment to the people that helped them the most. And that's not where you want to be, you know, as a parent or somebody that loves a talented athlete. And what I've seen um, is that there's a certain path that these high-level professional athletes take. And it starts with this. Like, it doesn't matter if it's football or soccer, snowboarding, whatever, skateboarding. Like before it's a sport, it's a game and humans play games because it's fun. And so these kids are out there having fun. And what is a natural byproduct of fun? It's progression. You're out there, you're having fun, you're doing it every day, you love it. You're just bound to get better. And now what's a natural byproduct of progression? It's fun. You learn a new trick on your skateboard, that shit is fun. So it's these kids that get caught in this positive fun and progression cycle that start moving forward, right? But that in itself isn't enough to get there, okay? You also have to have a kid with a unique athletic ability, okay? Don't have to be the great one. You don't have to be born Gretzky, but you do have to be better than your peers on the local level. You have to have a certain degree of natural athletic ability. And you also have to have an internal mechanism, an internal drive, uh, an ambition that like can't be coached by a parent, like a kid that just wants it. So what happens is if a kid has their own drive and they have a unique athletic ability and they're caught in a fun and progression cycle, what happens is the fun becomes a passion and the passion becomes an obsession. And when you're obsessed with something, nobody has to tell you to work hard. So, of course, at the high level, you you know, you play for the Seattle Seahawks. You make millions and millions of dollars, and there's 100 dudes that want to take your job tomorrow. Do those guys work hard? Yes, they work hard. They're grown men. They're adults. They're professionals. They work their ass off. But again, what gets people there is the fun and progression cycle. Oh, that is a great Very well said. You could write a book on that. Yeah. I would. Can you write that so I can read it? Yeah. <laughs> the parent that forces their kid too hard, that kid is like, I'm over Burnout this. city. Yeah. Well, dude, it goes back to what I was talking about, Lily and the fun pellets, man. Yeah. It's like you got to make it fun. You got to yeah. make it fun. My you wife know? was extremely talented piano, like 
award scholarship. Her mom made her practice like four hours a day. You can't catch her around a piano. She hates the piano. We have one in her house, never touched. Yeah. I have, a, I have a sidebar question. I just want to hijack this conversation for a second. Uh, you mentioned your your uh, wife works for Seattle Seahawks. I know you've kind of migrated from a Green Bay Packer fan to a Seattle Seahawk fan. Now, I'd like to go back to the Super Bowl a few years ago uh, when the New England Patriots were playing the Seattle Seahawks. And you guys pretty much had uh, the game locked up, um, but you guys chose to not give Marshawn Lynch the football. Um, and... What do you think about that decision? You know, that was the luckiest day in the Patriots fans' life. And all I just have to say is, you know, the sun shines on a dog's ass some days. You know, it's, it loved the moment. You know, live it up. Yeah, absolutely. My question for you is, how does it feel rooting for the second greatest quarterback of all time? Because nobody can fuck with Brett Favre. Uh, well, statistically, that's just in- inaccurate. Um, statistic- emotionally, <laughs> emotionally, you may be correct, but statistically, that's actually just not a fact. Um, but, yeah, we... I know there's, uh, yeah, this is where people are like <laughs> clicking out of the podcast. Right? Football. You know what though? Hey, I, I have a funny story. I, I, I hope Jackie doesn't mind me telling this story, but you know, I, I get some perks, you know, some husband perks. I get to go have some access to Seahawks stuff that is kind of fun, you know, and, um, you know, pre COVID uh, of course, you know, we'd go to the, the Seahawks holiday party and, um, you know, at one point I, uh, you know, sat next to John Schneider, who's the GM of the Seahawks at dinner and we became fast friends. You know, he's from Green Bay, Wisconsin and telling me story. He used to be a ski instructor at Afton Alves of this mountain that I went to. And, um, man, it was so funny because it's like a room full of people where like, I'm not one of the people you should be talking to, but we were just chugging beer and talking <laughs> about the Midwest and growing up and skiing and snowboarding and everything. It was like fast friends. And, um, I think like, you know, you know, celebrities, like high level people, it, it's just a reminder. They're just normal people with a really cool job. Yeah. And when you have a cool job like that, of course, there happens to be, you know, a kind of a protection or access barrier. And it's hard to, to reach these people, you know, or to get, you know, to communicate with them. But when you have an opportunity like that, that dude is funny and he is super, super cool. And um, yeah, this, it was like moments like that that like make me more of a Seahawks fan, knowing that, you know, how awesome that organization is um, from top to bottom and just cool people working there. And it's cool. Absolutely. And also to kind of relate that to Bud's and I's experience here at the show, we've realized, you know, we've had a lot of people sit in that chair, people that I've looked up to, Jamie Thomas, Ken Block, people that I, you know, never thought I'd be having a conversation with and they're sitting down for a few hours. And yeah, you realize when, when you have conversations with a lot of different people that whether you're billionaire or you got five cents and you're a CEO or you're a pro athlete or you're top of your sport, we're all the fucking same. You know, we all have, you know, struggles. You know, you think this person that has all this money doesn't have any, hasn't gone through any struggles and hasn't felt the same way you do. We're all, we're all pretty much the same as humans. You know, that we're not that much different. Everybody wants to make us fucking different in different ways. And, and I, I think that's always cool when you get to meet your heroes and they're just like you, you know, and you, hopefully you don't have an experience where you don't want to meet your heroes and they <laughs> let you down. That happens too. But, um, yeah, it's cool. Like this conversation has been incredible with you, you know, we learned, learned so much. And, and I have one other question I do want to ask in, as it pertains to business and stuff, because I, I love, again, actionable advice. I think stuff that you can take home with you. And, and so if you, if you had a young entrepreneur that's thinking about starting up a company or, you know, has this idea for a brand or something they want to start. Do you have any advice for, for that person? Um, yeah, I do. You know, um, be relentless and 
that's what it takes. You know, entrepreneurship is not easy. And um, if you're going to go into it halfway, you're going to have a hundred percent failure rate. And, you know, early days with Capita, it was kind of like this. We'd get to a roadblock, then we'd find a way to get over it. And then we'd get to another roadblock and find a way to get over that and another one and so on. And I just thought in the early days, you know, if we fast forwarded 20 years, 21 years down the road, logically, I thought either A, you know, we wouldn't be here anymore or B, the roadblocks would go away and it'd be smooth sailing. And that's not the truth. The reality is that the roadblocks never go away. They just change in size and complexity. And it's kind of like what Biggie said, more money, more problems, yeah. you know? And, um, you know, and so you have to be relentless. And one thing I can say about the history of Capita is that we had a 100% refusal to fail. There was no fucking way that this thing was going to fail. Not on my watch. No way. Huge advice. And I also wanted to say that that's you're you're totally um, kind of like disproving a fallacy in my in my mind. Right. There's there's this dream let's say with us or this brand, like we, we have, we have problems like every other company. Right. And you think that, well, once I get to this level, then we'll be all good. Once we get to this level, then we'll be okay. These problems won't exist. But really kind of what I'm hearing when I'm hearing you talk is it's actually the problems never fucking go away. But also if you can find a way to enjoy the process too, like realize it's like, it's problem solving's fun. Yeah. Enjoy the process. We're going to get through this. That's like the black belt move, and, and and obviously the relentlessness thrown in there with what you said. But and the bigger you get, the more is on the line too, yeah. right? Yeah. You got to go ham. Surround yourself by good peeps too. Yeah, that reminds me of one time I was actually at. This is early, early on, and um, I went to Zoomies Hunter K. I don't know you guys obviously know what that is, but for the listeners, it's you know Zoomies brings in a lot of their um, star employees and a lot of the industry responds in force. And there's all there's a moment of their show where they invite the founders of companies to go. And one of the uh, the early years I was I was there, and um, I'm looking at just heavy heavy dudes like. Richard Wolcott, the founder of Volcom, and um, Shepard Ferry, and just everybody from the skate industry, all your skate icons and legends, and you know, GT from Von Zipper, and so the list goes on and on. And while I was very appreciative of the opportunity to be there, I, I felt self-conscious. I felt like I didn't deserve to be there. You know, like there's, you know, Bob Knight from Quicksilver, like heavy dudes. And Capita's this little teeny tiny thing I bet you in my house. And there was a moment uh, where I was talking to Pete Sari, who's the founder of, of Mervin, awesome dude. Um, but Pete was just like, um, I, I kind of told him like, hey, I don't, I don't feel like, I, you know, I belong here. And Pete looks at me and he, he, he just said, you know, one thing to keep in mind is at one point, every single one of these companies was the size that Capita is now. And if you surround yourself with good people, you know, you will be successful. And I think that, uh, you know, one, in the moment, I just, I appreciated kind of, you know, the, the grace in his time and the moment to be reassuring. And that's also like one of the cool things about the snowboarding industry. It's like, it's competitive, but it's not competitive. It's also supportive at the same time, you know? And, um, and I appreciated that moment, but he, it also made a lot of sense for where Capita has been and where you guys are at the bomb home. And you're creating something very, very special here. 
And as this grows for you, you know, you're going to have to bring people in and you're going to have to delegate. And, you know, if you surround yourself with, with good people and capable people, you guys are going to do great. That's interesting. We got the invite to Zoomies uh, just a couple of days ago. Another thing that we totally forgot to get into is uh, where did the name Capita come from? That's a good question. Um, so let's bl- look back in, you know, the late nineties of kind of what was dominating the scene early two thousands. And, you know, around that time, you know, forum was larger than life, you know, the forum eight have so much respect for, you know, those guys and that crew and what they brought to professional snowboarding. And, you know, it's one of the greatest brands of all time for sure. But, you know, I think in their pursuit for excellence and the highest level of professional snowboarding, they also they created something that was exclusive and in exclusive in a positive way, but potentially um, exclusive in maybe a way that wasn't as inviting as possible, or people thought maybe if they weren't like the best kid in their town or the coolest kid in their town or whatever, they might not identify with that or feel like they could, you know? And um, when we started Capita, you know, the word Capita, uh, it comes from per capita, which by dictionary definition means by and for the people. And so Capita has been, um, it's the people's company. It's for everybody. It's been inclusive uh, from the very, very beginning. And that's kind of been a funny thing about how, you know, people love to tell you like what you are, you know, and they've always told us like, oh, Capita is this like, core brand or Capita is this art brand or, or whatever it may be, you know? Um, but the truth is that, um, it's always been a snowboarding company that has been open and inviting and inclusive, um, to anybody that likes what we do or identify what we do from the, the very beginning. Um, and that's continues to be where it is today. Incredible. That's great. Another sidebar too, on the Capita thing, talking to Dan and talking, you know, to some of the other writers knowing Scott, but I know you've taken like specifically with Dan, some almost like a mentorship role and, and gone on to pass a lot of knowledge on down to him. And, and uh, I just think that's, that's really cool. I want to commend you on that because you, you've been a pro, you have this brand. And, and again, it goes back to what you're kind of saying. Like it's more than just a company. Like you guys are creating something that's for the people and the people and surround yourself with good people, invest in good people. Do you want to talk about like passing on some of that knowledge to Dan? I mean, one thing that's important to me is having relationships that last. And I'm very thankful that in the case with, you know, Dan Breezy, it's like I sponsored him in 2006 and he think he got his first paycheck in 2008 or I don't know, maybe it was 2004, 2006. I don't know, but he was a paid professional snowboarder for a long time. And, um, and then, you know, when that professional era comes to a close, sometimes it's difficult for people and difficult for relationships. And I feel just thankful that we're able to uh, get through that and then, uh, continue on a relationship that will hopefully continue for a long time. And yeah, sure. When he was younger, there may have been moments where, you know, I could have positively mentored him, but I think we all know where this is going and Breezy's going to be the one mentoring me, you know, <laughs> real, real soon, yeah. you know? Yep. And that's also cool. That's, that's, that's great. That's part of the, you know, the amazing part of getting a little bit older and having a little bit of, you know, reflection is watching these, these people grow and, you know, go back to those Utah days, how many kids I saw come up through Brighton, you know, and, and that's a trip. 
because I was a little bit older. You know, I saw Nate Bozung and Jordan Mendenhall come up as these fucking cute, awesome, talented little kids that were just ripping, asking me about how to be a pro snowboarder, you know? And, you know, it's like JP and Jeremy, it's like those guys are legends and they're iconic and people know them because of their perseverance and, and their, their achievement over a long period of time. But, you know, let's not forget they weren't the only ones, their friend crew that were good. That Farmington crew and all their homies surrounding it were gnarly. Mm-hmm. And to see them all come up and, um, that was just really, 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 really fun, you know? And, um, you know, Timmy, I was such an awesome human and, um, all those, those kids surrounding them and, also, you know, one thing that ties into a conversation we like having is um, I find it interesting when kids from Salt Lake City can go on two-year Mormon missions and come back and be better at snowboarding than before they left. Yeah, what's that all about? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. But, you know, remember Jason Murphy? Yeah, Murphy came back. Dude, the he Murphy was roll. gnarly when he came back. Yeah, and I, he's I, hungry. I mean, I have a theory about that, too. It's I think, let's say when Jason Murphy left for his mission, in those two years— I didn't get better at snowboarding. Yeah. You know? And the reason why I didn't get better at snowboarding is probably because I wasn't focused on my craft. I didn't take it seriously. And I was partying my face off every single night, Mm -hmm. you know? And I was chasing experiences. I wasn't chasing excellence. And I can't speak for Jason Murphy, but if I had to, you know, guess, I would think when he went on that Mormon mission, he was connected to something higher than himself. He probably had a lot of gra- you know gratitude in his heart. I bet that he missed snowboarding, and I mm-hmm. bet that he visualized snowboarding every day what he was going to do when he got back. And the combination of that with being you know taking care of yourself, eating, eating right, you know, being fit, he came back and just lit people up. Just lit it up, and that's amazing. You could not snowboard for two years straight and come back and just light everybody up. Yeah, from <laughs> day know? one too. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, one. Another, I'm going to hit you with another hard-hitting fucking self-helpy question because I I fucking love these ones. But you know, you have you you've started Capita. You have a brand. There's a lot of people listening to the show that are trying to get their foot in the door, get on a brand, trying to get sponsored, whatever. What what advice do you have for that that lost young kid that knows he loves snowboarding, but and he wants to try to make a career, make it, if you will, focus on your snowboarding. And uh, I remember being at summer camp in uh, Whistler one year, and I was talking to Dave Lee. So Dave Lee, for those that don't know, he's the founder of Signal Snowboarding Company. Back in the day, he was a big-name pro. He had a pro model on LibTech, and um, he was in all the Mac Dog movies, gnarly. And I think we're probably the same age or close, but he was clearly more mature than me at the time. But I remember asking him, like, you know, Dave, you're at this, you know, you're at a level that I aspire to be at. You know, can you give me advice? Like, how can I get there? And he just looked at me and he's just like, Blue, focus on your snowboarding. He's like, you're focused on all this other stuff. Just focus on your snowboarding and you'll get there. And that really resonated with me. And that's something that I tell the Capita kids all the time, you know, all the time, focus on your snowboarding. And, you know, one thing that's kind of harshed me over the years, and this has gone back forever and ever and ever, but it's the bitter pro. It's either the bitter up-and-coming pro that complains about how he doesn't get what he deserves or the bitter ex-pro that's pissed about the industry or the team manager that kicked him out. And I just think, you know what, man? Like, all in all, if you want to look at the history of snowboarding, I think snowboarding's been pretty fair to people for what they deserve. 
Do you think for one second that Travis Rice or Terry Hawkinson or Sean White or Danny Cass or Sean Palmer or Jamie Anderson ever sat around and complained about what they didn't get from snowboarding? No. So if you're pissed that you're not getting enough from snowboarding, probably a good idea to focus on your snowboarding. Well said. Well yeah, said. Go get it. I got a little footnote to add to that too. I was listening to a podcast with Jay Shetty who um, kind of does a bunch of stuff, but uh, he was a monk at one time, but he, they asked him, what, what, what could you do? What would you do if you could prescribe something for 24 hours for everybody to do that would help their life? And he said, don't compare complain or criticize for 24 hours see how your life changes i was like damn but a lot of that pertained to what you're just talking about because i hear those three c's going through a lot of the bitter x current new pros per se or a lot of people in life for that matter i think one of the reasons why there's a little bit of bitterness in the past i don't know how you guys feel about this but our sport's very unique because we have two avenues to be a respected professional. You can take a competitive route and be an Olympian, X Games star, or you can take a non-competitive route. And in our sport, some of the non-competitive athletes are the biggest and the most influential. And that doesn't exist. I mean, have you ever heard of a non-competitive professional baseball player? No, doesn't happen, you know? And um, part of the non-competitive path is uh, is an element of subjectivity and it ties to people's um, relatability or personality. And you guys both know over the course of time, there have been guys that haven't been that great athletically, but have big engaging personalities and people love and want more from them, can't get enough. And then there's been the opposite of the guys that were just super great athletes, but pretty fucking vanilla and boring and kind of hard to get there for their career. And then the recipe for success, it's not rocket science. It's the people that have the unbelievable ability and the ability to connect is what creates Damian Sanders and Danny Cass and Kevin Jones and, you know, the legends of the sport. And um, that charisma, you know, the trick, you can learn the trick, but people can't really learn the charisma they either have it or not. And and I think that subjectivity is, is what can potentially be frustrating for some up-and-coming athletes. All right, we've been cruising along. We almost skipped over Hot Takes. Now, Hot Takes is presented by Oakley. I rock the Line Miner with the Prism Lens. Uh, they support the show. They support myself. So go on, get yourself some Oaks. And with that being said, we're going to start off with the first staple we like to get into, and that is the Michael Jordan of snowboarding, how it pertains to you, both male and female. What do you got? Peter Line, hands down. If you want to have a conversation about the top five greatest snowboarders in history and you're not talking about Peter Line, you're fucking crazy. Ah. Um, you know, I think if you want to talk about the Michael Jordan, you know, number one, he was better than all his peers in his prime. Uh, he was more famous uh, in, than his peers in his prime. That's not always the same thing. You know, the best athlete's not only always the most engaging one. Um, and he was relentless, did it year after year after year. And in addition to that, um, his contributions weren't left on the court. You know, he founded companies and designed products and created a legacy. You know, and Peter Lyon, um, he just relentless in the video park game year after year after year after year, openers and closers. In the middle of that, a laundry list of X Games medals and competitively successful 
inventor of so many tricks and responsible either directly for a lot of the progression of freestyle snowboarding or for inspiring the people that invented a lot of the tricks in, in, in freestyle snowboarding. And then what a lot of people don't know, you know, he's one of the founders of Forum, one of the greatest brands ever. Um, he, you know, designed clothes for Swag and for Special Blend and for Foursquare, and, you know, and not just like a, a, like a feedback voice at the table. He actually designed the clothes. And after he retired from professional snowboarding, um, you know, he, he designed the technical outerwear at Dekine for years. And, um, but yeah, I'm just like a huge fan. And, uh, you know, I was just in awe of him in the era. You know, I've traveled all around with a lot of different people. And I remember going to Japan with Peter Lyon in the 90s. I may as well have been there with Paul McCartney and John Lennon. It was fucking psycho. <laughs> wow, that was a female, too. Very thorough, yeah. proper answer. Love that. <laughs> I'm passionate about my <laughs> pro snowboarding. Sorry. <laughs> Love it. Uh, Jess Kamira. I backed that. Jess Kamira. You know, and the reason why is that um, I just, um, you know, the most professional athletes, it takes a lot to do it. Um, you know, your own career. And I think she's the, the first athlete I've seen come through our industry that it's, uh, it's about something bigger than herself. It really is about something bigger than herself. Now I think she has the, um, the accolades to share that title on her, on her own. You know, she has the video parts of the year, and um, what most people, you know, don't realize, she had like five Reader's Choice Awards. Mm -hmm. Now, I think maybe in the industry, people think, you know, the, the video part of year is the biggest award, but the entire purpose of sponsorship and endorsement is to, you know, connect and influence with customer base. So when the customer base is saying, hey, this is the person that I like the most and relate to the most, that's the biggest award. And she won five of them. And, you know, just everything that she's done, as an evolution with the Uninvited Project and opening the doors for female athletes and creating this new, you know, um, you know, energy or attitude through her video parts, a lot of people don't know. Just Kamira with the Uninvited, she paid for a lot of stuff out of her own pockets. You know, girls that want to go on trips that don't have a travel budget, just paid out of her own pocket. You know, and so just this attitude of like, hey, I'm not only here for myself, but I'm here to break this door down for every single girl that comes after me. It's unique and it's worthy of, of a lot of applause. Absolutely. Yeah. Bigger than snowboarding. Well said as well with that. Now, next question, who is the most underrated snowboarder? Uh, underrated. I'm going Brandon Kilcard. I'm going Kilcard. Um, you know, that one, I, you know, number one, he's an incredible human. He's a gnarly snowboarder. And in terms of the industry, I think he's doing everything right. You know, he's, uh, he's an amazing artist. He has a compelling style. He, you know, generates content. He plays in bands. He's in front of people on stage. And uh, from like a sponsor standpoint, he does every single thing that you would want an athlete to do on and off the slopes. And I've just felt over time that he has earned more of the support of the industry that maybe he hasn't um, received. And I'm kind of not sure why, you know, it's like I'm over here waving the flag saying like, this dude's amazing, you know, you should sponsor him. Um, and so um, I'm hopeful that like, you know, in the future, he, he um, stays inspired and ambitious and um, keeps getting after it. And I hope that um, more support comes his way. Worst trend. What do you got? Worst trend in snowboarding? Yeah. Hands down. 
detuning your edges. Wow. Okay. <laughs> people, people, listen to me. What about the strats? People, listen to me. Stop. Just stop doing it. Okay. You know, some some snowboard manufacturers, credible snowboard factories, big snowboard factories, their grind line, it looks like the back shop, back shop of a B-grade snowboard shop. You know, at the mothership, our grind line alone costs $7 million. Woo. Okay. It is high tech. Those snowboards out of the plastic are the edges of the way they're supposed to be. I ride every single board out of the plastic. Don't touch the edges. So you're saying the jib boards out of the plastic are good to go in the metal. Out of the plastic. If you want to take the, just the, the knife edge off, you can like run a, a, a scotch bite pad over it. Or if you want to have a, a different tune, that's fine. Take it to the snowboard shop, to somebody that knows what they're doing, and put a different tune on. But what drives me crazy and drives me crazy is when people take a perfectly good snowboard and then they pull it out of the plastic and immediately take like a um, angle grinder. file, a file, or file to yeah. the edge off, you know, because number one, it's the logic there. It drives me crazy. It's like, I'm going to go back to the Toyota dealership. I'm going to buy a $50,000 truck. And then immediately I'm going to put shitty bald tires on it. Maybe I'm going to drive it in a telephone pole. And then I'm going <laughs> to fucking think that I just upgraded my truck. It mm-hmm. does not make sense. Okay. You have two edges on a snowboard. You have four contact points on a snowboard. If you take that file to your edges, there's no way you're going to get the same angle on all four contact points on two edges. So immediately you just took your symmetrical snowboard and turned it into some wonky, weird, asymmetrical snowboard. It makes no sense. Stop doing it. <laughs> I love that rant. Uh, I love that rant. I'm going to challenge that rant. I'm going to challenge that rant. I I agree. I've actually switched. I don't touch my edges anymore. You don't. But, but, huge but. Big but. If you are a street snowboarder, okay, and you are going dead straight into a handrail and you're diving front board into a steep-ass kink. Maybe throwing a cab too sad. And you're, I'm going to tell you, it's going to be more difficult. You're go- what you're going to want to do is you- it's like you got the nice tires, okay, but you want the- those fuckers to be bald so you can Tokyo drift. Yeah, we're corner talking about like Tokyo drift. Okay, you want to talk Tokyo drift? I'm, I'm back in that. Okay, okay, there are special applications to snowboard. Yeah. They're not not all applications are created the same. Yes. So if you're an urban or street rail specific snowboarder, of course you do whatever you want because it doesn't matter if those edges are symmetrical or not. But if I, who I'm talking to, I'm talking to the consumer. Yeah. The average customer that's going to ride at a resort. That's who I'm talking yeah. to. And they see someone and, in a video do it, maybe. Yeah, and somehow, some way, there's this like notion that goes all the way back to the 90s that, oh, I have to detune the edge, and they don't know how to do it properly, and so they're going to take a file to their fucking brand new snowboard. That's that's my beef. I don't have any beef rant. with the great, street snowboarder. Also, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to back them up with another fi- uh, fun fact. Louis Parody. Louis. Best jibber. Out there, takes the board out of the plastic, doesn't touch the edges, really does all the crazy moves. So I just fucking debunked my entire. Yeah, he does the craziest. (laughs) (laughs) If you're an aspiring professional snowboarder, do whatever you gotta do. You're, you know, you're, you're whatever whatever makes you happy. Yeah, I'm talking to the consumer that just paid five hundred dollars for that snowboard. Do not take it out of the plastic. Might be on a low side these days. Yeah, and put take an edge to it. Next question: If you could go heliboarding with three people in the world, who would it be? Um, I got four because this is a bucket list for me. It's a dream for me, and it's probably not how you think, but it would be um, Joe Stalzer, Steve Chase, Dave Itis, and Mike Lewis, and that was my middle school skateboard snowboard crew. And, um, you know, we loved snowboarding equally as kids, 
and I've been able to have this life in snowboarding and go on trips like this. And those guys still love snowboarding, but they've never been on a go on a trip like that. And you know, when you go to like a place like Ballface and imagine, you know, your local resort, you get there early and it's a mega pow day and you get that top to bottom run, but the resort's tracked by noon, you know, or 10 even. And so you go Ballface, you get that run, every run, all day, every day. And you leave there every time I left that place. This is like the best trip of my life. And that experience, I would just love to share with my like middle school crew, you know? And someday I hope, I hope to do it. Solid. I love that answer. Now, middle school uh, crew, that's tight. We got to get into another thing that we like to ask is uh, your setup. Mm-hmm. What, what's your preferred snowboard setup, board, bindings, angles? Uh, so I'm still heavily design uh, involved with the design of the geometry of the boards, you know, um, and so I have a lot of boards to ride and test and evaluate over the course of the year. So I'm kind of riding something different all the time. But my go-to board is a board called the Mercury, and it's a kind of a free ride um, board, camber underfoot that has elevated contact points, and it's perfect for the Northwest. Um, and it can, it's it's like one of those days if you don't check the weather report and you don't really know what to expect. Um, you just take it cause you can handle anything. So no matter what setups I'm testing, like I always have a Mercury set up in the back of my truck. That's just ready to go. Um, and I use the union Atlas bindings, uh, 22 and a half inch stance. And, um, I'm usually, I fluctuate, but right now it's kind of like, um, you know, 18 and negative nine. Any forward lean? I'm a big, big advocate of forward lean. Guy likes to turn, huh? Big advocate. I, the, so my style, it's not everybody's style. I like really, really soft boots and really, really stiff bindings. Mm. And that gives me like the agility to do, move how I want, but then the power to like crank the bindings in forward lean and just make the board like rail. Yeah, that's in, that's always awesome to explain as a person that is into product design, like why you do certain things. So some people might know, not know why you crank your forward lean. You know, a lot of our listeners don't. We get that question a lot. Why, why do you, why should I do forward lean? Or where is the forward yeah, lean? Or what is <laughs> forward lean? That, yeah. yeah. So where, how do I adjust that on my board? We've gotten that a little also, bit. Also, yeah, there's no dumb you questions. You should actually either, explain so. that as a product designer. Um, so forward lean just enables you to put more pressure on your heel side edge, reduce the possibility of a washout. You know, it's like if you've ever snowboarded and you can rail these toe side turns, but when you go on your heel side turn, you kind of wash out. You know, and part of that is due to you know the difference of your toes and your heels on the side cut of the board. Um, but when you put a little bit of forward lean on the high backs, it puts additional pressure on that heel side edge and allows you to like rail it. Um, and you know, um, going fast and carving hard, it's fun. It's kind of a new art form within itself. You know, Do you rotate your high backs. I used to, yeah. I rotated those for years, years and years. I don't anymore. Yeah, no, I don't anymore either. The big Not the heel cut, the high back. Is yeah. that what you said? Yeah, yeah. Rotate the high backs. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't anymore, but I used to for yeah. a long, long time. And also another side note on the forward lean, like if you really want to notice a difference, if you're riding a half bite, no forward lean, and then you crank those suckers and you drop in and you do a backside air, they'll be like, holy fuck. Yeah. Not that I'm a fucking half bite rider. But, but those big pipe jocks, man, they got some forward lean. Whenever I go 10 million miles an hour to catch six inches of air, I land, <laughs> I go, holy shit, I'm killing it. And you feel like you went 30 feet. Mm-hmm. All right, Blue, we've been on a bit of a banter marathon here. I think it's about time to throw out a couple thank yous. It was a marathon. First of all, I want to thank you guys. 
Ethan, Chris, thanks so much Thank for you. giving me the opportunity to come and tell some stories about life and snowboard history. So I appreciate it. Thanks. Um, like to thank um, you know my dad, um, rest in peace, for instilling a sense of adventure and um, giving me an analog foundation for life. I'd like to uh, thank my mom for being my great enabler and supporter. Um, obviously, I'd like to thank uh, my wife and Jackie. Um, you know, sometimes when you get in a flow state, things are going good, and um, you know, Jackie and I decided to get married on the second date. And we found each other, and I just remember like being on the sidewalk looking at her and saying, you know, I'm going to marry you. And she looks back at me, and she said, I'm going to marry you. And I look at her, and I said, I'm not kidding. And she looks at me, and she said, I'm not kidding either. And she has just been an incredible partner through life, and now we've been married for 10 years, and we have two little dimple-faced cutie pies and Maddie Momo and Lily Diamond, who are just my, you know, inspiration on a daily basis. I love them so much. Um, I definitely want to, um, you know, say thanks to, um, my, you know, partners who, um, it's just been an incredible journey with both Capita and Union and C3 over the years. And, um, just really appreciative of the group. I want to say thanks to, um, you know, Marston, Iowa and just the village. I'm just so thankful for my childhood. And when I look back, <clears throat> you know, it's kind of incredible what, you know, what one can do with the public high school education and a desire to be great. Um, and most importantly, I'm thankful for everybody that has been a part of Capita over 21 years and, um, you know, team riders and, you know, employees and factory staff and distributors and retailers and shop floor staff. Um, I appreciate it so much. And, you know, most importantly, anyone that has ever gone into a store and bought a Capita snowboard, this one's for you. Well, we really appreciate you coming on the show, Blue. It's been an incredible chat, so thank you. We want to say thank you to everybody that tunes in and listens to the show. And we got another one coming at you next week, over and out from the bomb hole.